Hello, everyone. Welcome back for another week of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I'm Jack Greenstock, joined, as always, by an amazing panel. I'm going to pass it over first to Spartan Grown. Welcome back. Thanks, Jack. Um, thanks for having me. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, all one word, no spaces. And um, if you don't do the social media, you can get a hold of me, SpartanGrown at gmail.com. And I'm a organic. Well, I have knowledge of organic and synthetic gardening here in the state of Michigan. And I also am doing a little bit of dipping my toes in activism, cannabis activism. So if you have any questions about that, shoot me an email. I'll try to help you. That's good stuff. Happy to have you back. Next up, we've got Brandon Rust. What's going on, everybody? Brandon Rust here. It's going to be back with the panel, as always, so we can nerd out on weed stuff. Uh, yeah, but for all the listeners, you go check out my IG, where I have a lot of my work. I am the comeback king. I got deleted again, but got my account back. Uh, and also check out BokashiEarthworks.com for all your humate fertilizers, microbes, amendments, all the good stuff. Happy to have you back. And next up, Matthew Gates. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Gates. I'm a pest management specialist. And if you're interested to learn more about that kind of stuff, I'm sure you can drop some questions in the chat. You can also find a bunch of cool info on my YouTube channel, Zenthanol. And if you have professional inquiries, you can check me out at zenthanol.com or join my Patreon, patreon.com slash zenthanol. Happy to have you back as well. And I'm going to change the order a little bit this week and pass it over to the American one. Hello, Jag panel and everyone in chat. I am the American one on youtube and the american one underscore with underscore 18 on the uh ig and yeah it's always good to be here if you guys aren't familiar you can get check out amy aces and get that uh you type in amyaces.com it'll take you to the portal where you can find her over at daga.garden so yeah good to see everyone and good to be here we're happy to have you back and i changed the order a little bit this week because normally i'd say last but not least the american one but i couldn't i'd be remiss if i didn't mention that i've introduced him probably a hundred plus times at this point but this is the first time uh many of the viewers and listeners out there may be seeing him so welcome dr mj i'm sure many of you uh saw him on smart poker's channel and as well as his youtube channel when he made the reveal but happy to have you and uh see you for the first time on this show Aha, now you can see when I'm talking and like I don't have my mute unbuttoned because you'll see my lips moving. Anyways, yeah, thank you, Jack. Absolutely. It's it's a pleasure to to see everybody. I'm happy to, I don't know. I've been I've been thinking a lot about coming on camera for this show. I'm like, damn, I'm gonna have to like watch my facial expressions and like, you know, there's more pressure being on camera. Um, but uh I you know. Spartan and Jack, you guys doing this for a long time. I, I give you a lot of credit. So, anyways, yeah, I was on. I was just exactly on the Hemp with GG show leading up to this too. Um, one on the Smart Poker show, but this is all in in reaction to. I finally published that diodes video I'd been talking about for like a couple months on this show, um, and I went on camera for that. So that just dropped on Wednesday. If you haven't seen it yet, check out my video, The Science of Horticultural LEDs. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to be on with you guys. So tonight, I kinda... I'm, gonna, I'm just going to reemphasize that point. You should definitely check it out. Like it, the title is what it is. It's, it's definitely the science of this. And it goes over a lot of really cool stuff about how light works in general. Like, you know, I feel like with that fundamental concept, it's expanded in a way that's easy to understand, especially for myself. 
and um, you know you can kind of uh, understand how that works and uh, and choose good lights and things like that, or see when there's actually no difference between certain things. That right. was really cool. I'll admit, as well. it was deeper than we'll probably ever go on this show in many many elements, but it's very interesting. So I kind of want to take this week's show to. I not only highlight that video and kind of give you a chance to tease some of the info, not ob obviously all of it, because some of it's very scientific. And if you could rattle that off the top of your head, I'd be very impressed, even having just done it, because uh, it was very specific and how things actually work down to like the very, very finest uh, little minute element. But um, I also want to give Matthew a chance to share some of his info after we talked a little bit about lights on the top to share about his uh, recent information he's been doing about, uh, you know, IPM things related to powdery mildew and uh, portritis. So, Doc, I guess uh, you can go ahead and maybe give some people a little bit of the idea if they haven't already checked out your video, uh, maybe why they should go and check it out, what kind of information they might find, and some of the cool or new information that you maybe came across in doing the research. Of course. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a number of things. What I think is the cool thing, I mean, I, I, I tried to break down how LEDs actually work so that, you know, you can understand why lights coming out of these things and sort of what goes into that and i think understanding that helps you understand a little bit about sort of why they use different kinds of diodes on grow lights what kind of diodes you'd be looking for things like that understanding that level of of the physics of it a little bit you know allows us to get deeper into understanding why different kinds of diodes have different efficiencies and what that means for us in the end um and yeah, I took a, a bit of a tour in the video also on sort of what kind of light are we looking for for horticulture in the first place? Like, what do we actually want? Do we want things like, you know, ultraviolet light and infrared light or far red light? Um, you know, what kind of distribution of light through the, the PAR range too are we looking for? I think everybody's aware that most LEDs used to be what we'd call blur poles right, that only had blue diodes and red diodes. So I tried to explain sort of why that was and, and why we're doing, you know, LEDs a, a little bit differently now. Um, so yeah, hopefully there's a, a number of, you know, when I first started doing this, I was asking people, is this the kind of video that you guys are gonna be interested in? Is it close enough to sort of the, the information that we need as growers? And as I was actually, because I, I questioned, I'm like, is this getting too far away from the plants and too like deep into the diodes, right? Um, but as I was putting it together, there a lot of things came up that I think are, are really useful to growers to understand. Understanding, for example, that semiconductors, where like light comes from and a diode is from a semiconductor and a semiconductor creates monochromatic light. So they don't create sort of white light. They can create blue light or red light or green light or yellow light or ultraviolet light or like far red light, but they can't create white light per se. Um, we use blue semiconductors and then filter the light with phosphor in order to make white diodes. Um, and you know the white diodes then are always gonna be strong in the blue and weak in the, the red. And all of your full spectrum diodes are stronger in blue than they are in red. Um, and so for example, that's why grow light companies use both full spectrum diodes and 660 nanometer red diodes. 
um, to, to sort of pump up that other side of the spectrum and give you a more balanced sort of distribution of light throughout the PAR range. Um, so, you know, understanding some of those nitty gritty things, but also some pretty surface level stuff. Like one of the big things that came up in, in talking to LED diode manufacturers was their concern for sulfur, which we've talked about on this show before. So I get into that and like, this is something that once you understand a little bit more about how diodes work, we can kind of take better care of our LEDs as well. Another diode related thing that you mentioned in the video that I found interesting was the diode count diode manufacturer and bin because a lot of people and i've seen this they lead with we use this diode but then they don't say we use this amount of diodes on the board they say it's this amount of watts yep but they don't say we have a thousand diodes. biggest pet peeve it's basically if you run into that situation where they just won't tell you like you can't figure out how many diodes per watt there are it's because they, the grow light companies often know that they're using not enough diodes per watt. They, I mean, manufacturers, the, the diode manufacturers themselves will test the diodes. Usually at, if it's a one watt diode, they'll test the diodes for their own sort of statistics at 65 milliamps, which usually converts to about like 0.18 of a watt. So less than 20% of the rated capacity of that diode. And so 65 milliamps, right? And then they'll tell manufacturers that, you know, they're efficient up to a hundred milliamps. And, you know, that's like, like 0.3 of a watt, like a third of a watt. Um, and some girl like manufacturers will, despite that, you, you know, power them higher than that. So in other words, use fewer diodes per watt. Um, and I think it's when they've made the decision to use fewer than the manufacturer basically recommends that they become unwilling to like reveal that information. At least that's been my experience. That's probably not always the case, but I can't think of another good reason why a grow light company wouldn't tell you how many diodes are on their fixtures. And I've literally had to count them on some fixtures because the companies won't tell you. And on the back end, the reason that that's a problem for the people that are listening who might not realize is if you're overclocking a diode constantly, the whole entire life cycle of owning that light, it's not going to be as efficient while it's running, first of all. Yeah. But on top of that, it will burn out even quicker than if you were running it at the proper uh, draw per diode. So yeah. it does essentially burn your light out a lot quicker. So it might look like it runs great for that first run. And then it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And uh, it'll burn out like a proper one will last a few years with pretty solid efficiency it has some drop yeah. off but it's not insane but by the and time if you, if you years run go a by lower power rating yeah they'll they'll definitely last longer um if you run them down like at the 100 milliamps so that's the rule right most full spectrum diodes on grow lights are rated for one watt but you don't want them to you don't want like one diode per watt they'd be putting way too much power through them um to get the best efficiency you want like five diodes per watt, four, three is okay. Three is really is okay. For most of the diodes, you're running at about, about a third of a watt if you have three diodes per watt, um, and you're still gonna get really good efficiency with that. If you start getting less than three though, you start ramping up you know, the amount of power that you're putting through each individual diode pretty quickly. Um, and the efficiency drops quite a bit and the lifespan of the diodes drop quite a bit. So one of the points that I make in the video is, you know, everybody's chasing certain brand names for their diodes. And, and one of the things that I've seen, certainly in the grow light community, you know, as we've moved into LEDs, 
the what growers seem to know about their LEDs is I want I want Samsung and Osram diodes, basically, right? I want my Samsung LM301Bs and my Osram 660 nanometer diodes. And as long as a grow light has that combination, a lot of people think that it's a good quality grow light. Um, and that's led a lot of grow light manufacturers to like make lights with Osram and Samsung diodes, but not use very many of them and sell them for, for big discounts, basically. Um, you know, because they're not using enough diodes and you think you're getting a great deal because you're getting these like name brand diodes and that's the only thing you've ever, you know, thought of in oh, terms of what it's quality. I got a, qu a question from chat that is, uh, is a question. Uh, it's what I want to hear an answer to. So what yeah. Fred asks, if the, um, if the diodes are cooled better, if they're running harder, does it, will that lengthen the efficiency and also lengthen the life? Yes, that's not sort of necessarily going to correct for overpowering them, but okay. that is its own dimension as well. The, right. the cooler okay. the diode runs, the more efficiently and the longer it will last. Um, but it would still be more efficient at a lower power draw than at a higher power draw, even if it was kept cool. No matter how, right, right, okay. Right. But certainly that's one of the factors that can be sort of a compounding issue because the more current you're putting through it, the more heat is going to build up and that's going to drive the efficiency down as well. Um, that's really why we want to have heat sinks and why they used to have to put fans and stuff like that on, on LED grow lights because you want to get that heat away from the diodes. You want the diodes to be able to be a, stay as cool as possible. That's a great point. And uh, I think that they're doing a pretty good job with the heat sinks. And also because they're so much more efficient now, they're just producing less heat. It's got more and more efficient year after year after year. So like in your video, I think you said they're like almost like 80 or maybe even a little bit higher percent efficient, which is yeah. much greater than a lot of the previous technologies. And uh, one thing I'll warn people of, I've seen like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever on social media, people will go and I've found the source you can go and do it yourself unfortunately wish.com you can basically build your own grow light and pick like oh i'm going to use this diode and it might take like a month or whatever to come to you so people make what they know as desired specs so samsung and osram diodes but when i looked at one of the people that was doing this i'm not even going to say their name because i don't want people to go harass them or uh, provide them any business but they had in many cases less than half or a third the number of diodes compared to a competitive thing at maybe 50 or $100 more. It's like you're just paying a tiny bit more to get like so much more. And from a trusted, reputable person who's going to have good customer service and things like that. Yeah. So it is, uh, you might be a uh, penny wise and pound foolish in some cases trying to chase the cheapest possible light because our eyes might not be able to tell when you look at that light, if it has half the number of diodes of another light, it's going to be really hard for your eye to tell. You'd have to send it to Doc and have him test it with a nice fancy meter and then he would be able to say wait this one actually has way less output and way less spread and uh, way worse efficiencies but for the human eye and your plants like plants will grow under a not so efficient light <laughs> you're just not gonna grow as fast you're not gonna get as much you're and... not gonna even notice sometimes until you get your plants on the scale and they just don't you know you don't get the the weight that you were expecting to get because you hadn't been delivering the photon density throughout sort of the, the whole grow that you were expecting um yeah there's some crappy lights there's some lights out there that really are underpowered 
and are sort of under under dioded, right? That underpowered like, and overmarketed. Or so basically overpowered. Like, you know, just not having enough diodes in a hundred watt light means it should actually only be like a 30 watt light. Not, not that it's over, you know, it's just overpowered for the amount of diodes that they have. And that's exactly what you want to try to avoid. It, it just isn't going to be efficient. Um, and diodes are cheap enough that, you know, it, it shouldn't be the thing that, that flops it. But for comparative quality diodes, like the Samsung LM301H, in particular the H, are more than twice as expensive for the grow light manufacturers to buy than a lot of the other diodes that rate comparably to them. Um, so, you know, there's a huge temptation like, okay, we'll get these, but then we're going to use fewer of them because they cost so much more than like the other diodes. Um, so hopefully, I think if, if growers can look for other dimensions or other sort of markers of quality, than just a, a couple of brand names that'll help. I think the Osram 660 nanometer one is even is even worse because there's great Osram 660 nanometer diodes. There are also crappy Osram 660 nanometer diodes. Very few grow light companies ever tell you which ones you're getting. So like, I mean, just knowing that they're Osram 660 nanometer diodes without even knowing a, a model number or a bin is is really not telling you very much at all but growers are like looking for that brand they think that that brand means quality and so if you really wanted osram you'd have to pay the big bucks i guess and go with fluence because they're literally by osram and i think your best likelihood to get a quality diode is from the actual manufacturer oem from them directly because they're going to give themselves the best chips first priority and then the other people are going to get that or worse so uh that's one and yeah, they're not cheap at least at least find the model number and the, the bin rating so with the osram 660s their model numbers are a, a decimal so it's like you know 2.28 i think is one 4.24 um and then the bin rating is a letter number combination and v9 is their top bin diet that like everybody is sort of thinking that they're getting with that but you know, there's a lot of lower bin diodes. They make both ceramic base and plastic base 660 nanometer diodes um, rated for, I think one through five Watts. So just knowing that it's an Osram diode is, is nothing. I mean, you don't know what, what are on there. You know it's too vague. It tells you barely anything. The best thing to do is go to cocoforcannabis.com and go through the calculator and find the light you want to buy and then watch the little uh, review that Doc does of it. And yeah, that's just so enlightening because like, yeah, now you're getting down to the nitty gritty. You'd be calling up the manufacturer. What's this, what's the diode bin number and stuff, which they yes. might tell you, but you might not even ever be able to find They often that. don't tell me. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, watching, I watched a couple that, cause I was looking at lights and it's just a wealth of knowledge and he'll tell you straight up if it's great for the money, how efficient it is and everything. It really is a great uh, resource. I got to say. Thank you. You know, ultimately, and I, I said this in the video too, and not to be like totally self-serving, but yeah, a good independent par test is the best way to sort of evaluate lights because there's a bunch of different things that come together. It's like what diode it is, what bin rating it is, how many of them there are, how well was the, the whole light put together in the first place, all of those things, you know, come together to determine how efficient and how well the light's going to distribute the light and all the rest of that. And that's ultimately what we're buying. So, you know, you can try to figure it out based on sort of the, the components and the statistics about those components. But 
there's nothing like, you know, setting the light up and seeing what it actually produces in real life. Well, another thing you said was that, you know, there are other things, and you've mentioned this kind of in tonight's uh, show, that other companies, whether it's Let a Star or whoever else, they sent you like a little board that showed all the different spectrums and many different types of diodes. And they have uh, been that is pretty comparable. Yeah. So like they barely reaching over here. Here, I can turn some of these diodes on. These are the and, and they're one of many, many diode manufacturers out there. And they they're all competing to try and get to this top level efficiency with that LM301H. So there are other people out there that can produce similar, if not the same exact thing yeah. at this point. Let me ask a quick question, Doc. Those are three um, different sets of of hold on, just said three different sets of 616 nanometer diodes from a one watt plastic-based diode to a three-watt ceramic to a five-watt ceramic. And I guarantee you, you cannot tell just by looking at the light that comes out of them, which is which. That's what my question is. What is the difference between the top best diode and the crappiest diode of any given uh, spectrum, whatever, you know? Is it even, is it marginal? Is it 10, 20, 30% or is it 2%? Oh no, it, it's a pretty big, you know, most, uh, okay. of, most manufacturers, when they do efficiency bins, it's um, the range of their bin is half a micromole per joule. So like if they're top rated diodes or if they're claiming like that's, you know, 3.1 micromoles per joule for a full spectrum diode, for example, um, that top bin might be just like 3.0 and above the next bin would be 2.5 to three. And if there's three bins, the next one would be 2.0 to 2.5. And a lot of diode models have between two and four efficiency bins. Most bins are half a micromole per watt in, in sort of efficiency range. So from the top to the bottom, it could be two micromoles per joule in terms of efficiency. And that's true for some of the 660s. So 660s in micromoles per joule, are higher to begin with so they're you know the the very best are above four like 4.2 4.3 for the very best 660 nanometer diodes um and you can absolutely get 660 nanometer diodes that are down in the twos too much more frequently seen actually <laughs> a lot of people don't realize i think those are because they're adequate they're more affordable they're much more frequently placed within the lights. so that's what you're seeing right now is the two uh, micromole. The four micromole per joule reds yeah. are extremely expensive and they're being used only in the luxury exotic lights yep. and by the original manufacturers. And there are cheaper lights out there that can be competitive with different older diodes by having more of them and just using an efficient driver and like better spreads. And uh, like Doc has tested like some really uh, affordable lights that have incredible performance, but they don't necessarily use the LM301B no, or H. they don't. They don't. The, the cheap lights that use the LM301Bs won't perform well in my tests because they're, they're not using enough of those diodes. So the cheap lights that perform well in my tests are all using other brands of, of LEDs because- Or old Samsung in some cases. Yeah, older models are, are just different models of Samsung that don't have the same sort of price premium built into them. Um, I can't remember what brand it was, but I saw a- a light that used just a different bin of Samsung and it was like one of the best 
testing and even though it was like just slightly yep. what, whatever is like just below lm301 oh the lm301z's yeah which were the, or the lm301z plus diodes um samsung also has like the 288s um and they're literally they're like you know what is it two and a half to three cents per diode instead of like six to eight cents per diode um so if you're buying hundreds of diodes it's a, for each light as a grow light manufacturer, that is a big difference for sure. I kind of feel like what I like the most about your video, not the most maybe, but one of the things I like the most about the type of video that you do and other types of videos that you do, Dr. Coco, is that like, uh, it reminds me a lot of like the hacking community and like the, the people who like to be very uh, um, geek out about like, metal and knives and things like this because in both cases you you mentioned something very important is that you know in the hacking community there's this sort of uh, idea that like if people are actually aware of their own security and they start demanding more of people who distribute like locks and other sorts of things like that uh you know then the bar is it, it raises whether you like it or not and then you as a company have to like deal with the fact that you have an informed uh, audience that's buying yep. from you instead of yep. people who don't and that's such an important thing same thing with the metal if they're not telling you what metal your knife is made out of or whatever other implement it's probably not good you know and they'll, right. they'll do things like oh it's it's uh traditionally made oh it's high quality japanese steel well, that doesn't mean anything there's nothing to quantify with it's that like saying natural yeah that was, a big, that was a big problem actually a big scandal recently with a uh person who's a group that was advertising their knives and they were made out of like cheap tool metal and right. yeah so so i definitely i love anything that is going to inform a customer education and, uh, that yeah. that's what and i said that like in the intro to this i'm like you know the grill light companies often just try to pull a fast one over on us growers and in the end the best the best sort of tool like, yeah, for this the best solution is just education like let's try to spread good knowledge amongst the the growers so they don't get kind of bamboozled by a grow light company or end up making sort of the wrong decisions spending more money on a lower quality light for example because of a clever marketing technique or being told like this has UV light or this has, you know, Samsung diodes or something like this, where you're not really, you're only being told, you know, a third of the amount of information you'd need to make an educated decision. I hate to say it. Sometimes it's the, just the influencer. Like they like somebody that they follow who uses that light, who happens to be sponsored. And in oh, some yeah. cases it's a good light. In some cases it's not a good light. And I follow people that push both. So uh, I respect Everybody who's growing their own, and I get that there is also different price points, but like Doc mentioned importantly there, sometimes you'll pay more money and not get something quality just because right. they're spending that money on marketing to get it yep. to you. Like I, I recently switched organic soaps because the other soap company I was using advertises a shit ton, so their bars of soap cost more, and you can get good organic soap for a lot cheaper than uh, necessarily the one that spams your instagram feed sorry go ahead Tom. you know there's a uh, whole subset of, of the grow light market in particular of people just selling like obvious crap at crazy inflated prices with a story like and that they've unlocked the key to like how thc is made and their light is some special light or their oh my god combination of of yeah, wavelengths or their one patented yeah. when they start patented spectrum 
when they start guaranteeing harvest and, and they're advertising, they say, you're going to get X amount of pounds off this light. I already start looking the other way. Uh-huh. Yeah, but yeah, sometimes just... they use that and they're like, and our light costs $18,000. And that's why it's so special. And if you really want to grow the best bud, you need to get this $18,000 light because we do things with the photons that nobody else can do. It's like <laughs> magic. Yeah. I mean, no, I'm serious. There's, there's one literally patented a spectrum. That market spectrum primarily in the commercial the space. That's they're their the line. That, I mean, that's, that's who they're doing. How they're trying to sell I, I want to point out, though, because Black dog's um, bad too. I, I want to point out about uh, looks yeah. are deceiving too. Like like Doc said, you you can even see the bud and it'll look good. But then when you go to weigh those plants that look good from that light that your uh, influence, a guy that you like shows you, might be half the yield that you know you were already getting so or it's just one good looking bud it's so easy to get right. one yeah. nice bud and and just Filming have everything else cropped tricks out tricks with the cameras are incredible man i had something that was like a quarter size you put it in the right frame it looks like it's you know a coca-cola size bud meanwhile it's a golf ball you know so yeah if you wear <laughs> yeah 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 kind of I have to use another agree. one i'll throw under the bus because they sell lights for like two or three thousand dollars that are like blurple efficiency from amazon four years ago and that's just wrong it's it's ripping people off uh gromau did a gromaus did a great job he tore them apart showed literally showed the innards like here's the heat sink this is a cheap shitty china heat sink and nothing the videos like china. That. but he actually showed why it's bad and like just like doc's test will if it's not a good light the efficiency will the numbers will show it it is what it is and right. it's a, it's a tool and it's a tool that we use for a very beautiful thing but a lot of people like to over mystify it because like there's been a few studies where they've looked at uv and so it's sexy to throw a uv diode in there and uh it's like cutting edge and maybe there will be something someday but i i'm with doc still on the uh use fluorescent if you're trying to get uv in there because right. the led uv diodes that's another thing you mentioned in there it's just the when you actually broke down the efficiency yeah. how it was like i loved that yeah how low it was it was fascinating because i was like yeah that, that absolutely sealed the deal for me not only does it like just burn itself out and die in your light but it's basically producing nothing yeah. it's, it's like pouring GM, electricity yeah, for nothing it's a heat maker like, yep you know GML we just can't say, do that well with with leds yeah and maybe we will but yeah it's it's terribly right. inefficient and we don't need it so <laughs> like you know gml was saying how he won't put them on his boards because they'll die out in whatever three years meanwhile the rest of the ones are warranted for five years and it's just ridiculous to do something like that yeah so yeah it's, it's a waste of the whole three years even if it was there and uh grunt grown has a quick question that i think is relevant to this topic and uh, doc actually mentioned what he does last week uh with the whole arizona tactic which i thought was good but he <laughs> says in spirit of daylight savings what's the best way to shift around your schedule forward or backward one hour to adjust for the shift in time at cheap home grow so yeah uh, my plans just went from eight eight to seven seven and there's nothing i can do about it or want to do about it although i should have started them on nine nine to begin with so they'd be on eight eight now because seven's kind of early in the morning but um yeah that's what happens the plants don't change at all the timer doesn't change for daylight savings time the the plant the lights are connected to my clocks change so you know it just becomes an hour earlier just like the sun goes down an hour earlier and comes up an hour earlier the sun goes down and comes up in my in my grow time an hour earlier on my clocks too so just a question because i'm in san diego and sdg and e we have uh the time of use thing and from four to nine it's a lot more elevated um your 
you have solar, right? Does that offset your grow enough where you just don't yeah, care? Yeah, but I actually, right. I could probably power my grow during the day. Um, and, and I've thought about that by running lights on during the daylight hours. I, I don't think it would get me at this time of year. It wouldn't get me into a situation where I'd have to run air conditioning, right? Most of the time. Um, but that's the downside. If you ever have to turn on the AC to knock down the heat, then it, it kind of kills your margins. Becomes kind of productive. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's why I said I should have started my grow a little bit later because I do, I am coming on. It's still, it's pretty small, you know, power that I'm running only 300 watts for my light. So it's not like, you know, an entire grow room coming online or something like that. But, um, it is coming on during that shoulder, you know, flex alert time right now. So having it come on a couple hours later would have been better. Well, what put it in perspective for me is when I have my lights on at 9 p.m., because my time of use where I'm at in San Diego, because I'm like already compared to the tiny little places that I'm in, people don't use hardly any electricity. So I'm like the top, top, top usage person. And so from 8 to 9 p.m., that one hour would cost me as much as the next four hours. And it's such a yeah. slap in the face. I just can't. I hate that I'm stuck wow. in this monopoly with SDG&E where I have to only pay them. And until like I own my place and can get solar to offset it and yeah. have a battery or something, I just don't want to pay them. So what I do is I just shift the time uh, either on usually through the dark cycle, like Doc had mentioned, if you're going to change it, I like to uh, extend the dark for an extra hour on the one end and just you, you adjust your timer. So when the light comes on, it comes on an hour, I guess, earlier at the start or an hour later at the end. So there's a few ways of doing it, but <laughs> I've tried both and it works either way. You could just literally snap your fingers one day. The plants aren't really gonna notice the, or maybe they will. It just, I don't think it's a large enough stressor. Uh, I haven't had any plants harm personally. This fall back but... isn't a stressor. Spring forward can be a stressor only if you try to take the hour out of the dark period. Um, but fall like cutting back- Cutting it down to an 11 hour instead of a 12 hour dark yeah, period. Yeah, if you cut your, your lights off time down to 11 hours, that can screw the plants up a little bit in the spring. In the fall, you, there's not much risk if you do want to do what Jack's saying and just leave the lights off for that extra hour, you know, now to, to get them back on schedule. The other thing I would say about that is, you know, consider your fall grow starting at 10 if you wanted it to eventually end up at nine, right? Start at 10, 10. And, you know, I don't know if we're ever going to do daylight savings time again, but if this happens next fall, you know, you would just start at 10 and it would work itself naturally to nine. In the spring, it goes the other way. So you could start at nine and when daylight savings time flipped, it would, it would move everything to 10. I've had that happen and that's usually when I won't mess with it because I'm like, oh, I could stay up till 10. It's not that bad. But uh, if you're one of those people who's in bed earlier and you have to wake up early for some reason, uh, getting to be in the garden. And I guess certain people like Doc don't even like to work underneath the light. So uh, it's lining things up so that it works with but your you've time gotta, schedule. I got to work during the lights on hours, right? So You turn them off, but you... Yeah, I just have to turn on the lights, but yeah, it's, it's still during that time. I'm going to do that tonight after we get off this show now that my plants are on like seven seven i'll have about an an hour to get ready and then at seven i'll just have the lights flipped off so they don't come on and i'll go in there with some supplemental lighting that i can just like you know little cfls or whatever that i can just work under um do some training and stuff and then when i get out of there i'll turn the, the full lights on 
now one more thing with lights because uh one of the brands says literally don't grow blind and shout out to them because i think it's uh, making people aware that led diodes can be harmful to your vision i was a little bit surprised when i commented on one of uh shane from migros migros videos he's never wearing eye protection in any of his videos and i commented on it and he kind of like brushed me to the side like huh I'm not worried about it, like fuck off kind of thing. I was like, well, I'm worried about it. It gives me headaches and it gives me headaches almost like sort of despite the the protection. So I actually now I put a sleep mask on that I've cut holes out and then I put my glasses, my UV glasses on over sort of the heat mask. So that like blocks out every other place that light could leak in um yeah because i'll be standing over these lights for like hours just like you know when i'm testing this is when i'm testing though this isn't when i'm like working in the garden and i really hate wearing that thing and it's like all hot and bothersome and there's like heat coming off the top of the light and all that crap so um i'm sort of miserable <laughs> when i'm testing the lights but if i don't wear that um it, it'll it'll absolutely give me a headache and like you know blind spots sort of but like just this frontal sort of headache that can't be good that's why i really like those glasses that are they wrap around the side of your head instead of they just sitting flat forward like that yeah like you're saying the side will get you every time so the side have ones in that, there. Oh. that's why i got rid of all my like aviator style because like if i'd ever lean down like the sun would be shooting in right over the top like i get the kind of wraparound style now and some of the I, I, i'm not plugged but shout out to method seven because i think they make pretty cool looking glasses and everybody that i know who uses them loves them and i'm pretty sure they have really good warranty and i think that they're made here in the u.s even if they're not whatever um but they have and i think spartan could speak to this because i think your pair is like this they have some that have like an inner kind of a, almost like a goggle feature where it's like just like a eye cup that goes around the inside of the lens so that it's doing sort of what doc is talking about naturally where even though it might not be snug to your face like the actual lens there's that piece that creates a shade between the yeah. eye and the lens and it's a soft comfortable little piece yep yeah i i agree you need something like that i think that um if you're working regularly under led lights you should wear eye protection for sure and it definitely bothers some people more than others. I mean, I, I understand that, but I think it does damage to everybody. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I have blue eyes, so I'm super sensitive. I always have been. Like I was a lifeguard growing up and being in the sun, I always paid to have polarized sunglasses. And um, I've even seen a shout out to like Chef Anna with the pot. He, they got me into the idea of doing this, but the ski goggles that are polarized, if you want something that blocks 100%. Uh, my wife kind of laughs at me sometimes when I'm breaking out the ski goggles, but uh, it some people use it for like anonymity purposes too if they're like posting on instagram they have their little ski goggles and it blocks off you know a good chunk of their face but um it is a good way to work in the garden i will say that a lot of them have kind of weird hues and tints so try and look for one that's just like a yeah. mineral because a lot of them are made like for you know skiing or snowboarding and so in it's flat light on snow uh, you know with glare having those weird lenses helps pull out perspective and depth in in snow but not in your plants. Yeah. 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 So I have, uh, so I really like the wraparound polarized glasses more and they're just easier to get on and off. And like you said, just in, in the grow room, it can be hot. So having like something that is like, that could be sweaty on the face. looks like Tao is starting to share a screen. Oh, here we go. These are some old school, like the, uh, native sunglasses. I think this is a, um, yeah. Native American or, uh, um, Alaskan. 
yeah it's tell us what we're like going to do what polarization does um to some extent by doing that. oh i was muted yeah inuit eskimo inuit. Uh, sunglasses there you go yeah and then that's, that's what you need doc <laughs> <laughs> there you go no, I look like a crazy fly or something because I really do. Like I said, I wear a sleep mask. I tried a lot of different things. And the only thing that would like completely block all of the light from like on top and the bottom and everywhere around my my face was just putting a sleep mask and cutting holes in it. Um, and then I put glasses on top of that. So it, it, is a, it is a look, face. I will say that. But that's yeah, what I'm going as Halloween next year. <laughs> I've even heard that uh, potentially being under blue LEDs or uh, certain, like obviously UVs, but the bluer spectrum, if intense enough, it can be like cancer causing to the skin if you're under and exposed to it for long enough. And when I somebody said that and I was like, that doesn't sound right. And I looked into it and I was like, oh shit, there's actually a lot of studies that say it like, you know how it causes plant to uh, kind of shrink. It like does some weird things to our cells as well, uh, interestingly enough. So radiation is with radiation the, in the end too. I mean, taking enough, radiation is gonna do damage to you that's a great point and uh it is kind of all around us and that's why like we wear sunscreen when we go outside right it's uh essentially blocking that sun from hitting your skin have, directly i have to admit i will not wear sunscreen ever <laughs> we will we've been on the planet with the sun above us since inception yeah, well, yeah don't get me started like 30 on, uh, years. Yeah. you ever get sunburned how you go down to jamaica in the middle of the year in the winter here in well, the that, you go down yes, to jamaica I, and you get your ass burnt make, like a lobster uh, i will make an exception yes when I, if i'm in if it's february and i go somewhere where it's the sun i will use some sort of yeah. blockage yes i i take it back but in general yeah that's my thought i think it's a scam because we lived under the sun our entire existence our what skin, about my albino uh, brother it, it prevents damage from accumulating <laughs> The, the damage that we do to our sun is cumulative or that we do to our skin from the sun is cumulative. And if your life expectancy isn't very long, then it, you don't really have to worry about getting sun cancer. But if you want to live to be 70, 80, 90, that you may need to be more aware of how much I'm cumulative sorry. radiation you absorb with your skin or you may yeah, end up getting carcinomas or melanomas. Even if you don't get cancer, workers. These self-imprisoned office workers don't even get the sun. People, you need the sunlight on your body, too. I agree. You That's need it for vitamin too. D and other That's reasons true. for health little, and mental yeah. health. But, but, Tal, what I was going to say is there's sunscreen guys Sunscreen doesn't here. prevent your body from, from breaking down vitamin D, though, right, either. It breaks down over time, guys, too, so it wears see off. the leathery of their skin, you know? You know it definitely is not helping the look, but, right. I mean, you could yeah. do the elephant thing. I mean, people, I mean, you're right. People have been under the sun for a long time. But some of the things people have done is, like, cake their skin in uh, mud or yep. do other yeah, sorts yeah. of things that might not be socially well, acceptable anymore. Well, lifeguards yeah, would wear the one that doesn't body. rub off. Right? That's What's true. That's actually, I've often said as a San Diegan that, um, you know, like robes are basically the appropriate wear because like, right. you know, it's light, it covers your body and maybe like with a cap or something. And uh, like, that's, that's the, that's the world. That's the weather I live in. <laughs> yeah, I guess most of the people that work outside where you live, where, where you live yeah, too, right? Would make I could difference. use some more clouds, honestly. I, I have to admit. 
Yeah, I've seen enough people that are like retired here in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who, uh, those who choose to wear sunscreen, you can see their skin is uh, still relatively still normal. Pliable. Those who don't, <laughs> yeah, it's like a baseball <laughs> mitt that has uh, been yeah, used yeah. for probably 20 or 30 years. And it's just like oh, that boy. thick, leathery, kind of, uh, you know, a lot deeper wrinkles. And nothing wrong with that. It's uh, Your looks are only one part of your life. Some people don't care about being vain in that way. And so it's like, whatever, they'd rather get the vitamin D and health from being outside and uh especially you know, when you're 80 you get vitamin d anymore. whether or not you're wearing sunscreen so sunscreen <laughs> okay, doesn't you prevent go. you from breaking beta carotene down into vitamin d if you, well, you know, are black or if you are dark skinned like myself and you are like spf 100 you're not going to get enough vitamin d from the sun i'll just say that SPF, been... it doesn't prevent your body from breaking beta carotene down covering your body or not going out into the sun would but sunscreen preventing the uv light from infiltrating your skin does not prevent beta carotene from breaking down into vitamin d yeah and they've, they've done studies you also you can also eat cancer so and and also there's a lot of uh, sunscreens that will give you cancer like fucking johnson and johnson bullshit that doesn't do good uh, quality control and they send out stuff that has benzene that causes cancer and there's lawsuits going on over that so be careful what you use and uh, look into the products that you smother all over Maybe we should get back towards growing and stuff. And he's frozen though, but yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> it's all situational too. Like if you live at the equator, I would imagine you wouldn't want the sun on your skin, no matter what, you know, well, yeah, that, was really I, intense. Yeah. It could be, it could be, yeah, it could have had a few, you know, I think Dr. Coco probably could uh, tell you all about some the of the differences some of the yeah. differences of how that might have come about um you know as, as smart has very coyly mentioned in the chat you know there are some people who think that people can photosynthesize it's true <laughs> but, um, it's uh yeah. it's a thing it's, it's uv a, yeah. i mean what we're what we're worried about for skin is really uv light like we're talking about yeah. for growing too and you know uv is largely filtered out in our atmosphere so where you have to be really worried about it is at higher altitude um mm. higher altitude and this is actually skiing comes up quite a bit for for people getting a lot of sun damage um both visually and that's why goggles are the way they are um because you get a lot of uv light and it's yes. reflected off of the snow and it's glared and it's polarized so the lights are coming at you in one way that's why polarized lenses are really helpful for those situations the more atmosphere you have the less uv you're gonna get um because you know uv light is basically filtered out in the atmosphere um so being at sea level at the equator is safer than being at altitude in the uh, okay I got to say, skiing is the one time, like, yeah, my eyes hurt uh, after a day yeah. of sunny skiing. And yeah, I, the could, I, they should, I bet you it would be more prudent to wear sunglasses more often than that. If you worry about sunscreen stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Protect your eyes for sure. I mean, because, yeah, it, being exposed to all that glare will definitely harm your vision through time. And like one of the points that Jack was bringing up with the um, ski goggles is the how that's kind of color changing. And that's just another reason why I would advocate for companies like Method 7. That's the same ones I use. And because they have color corrected lenses for whatever lights you're growing under. I have several pair because I have for several different lighting. So I have one for HPS. I have one for LED. And it really does help for you to diagnose plant problems underneath it because it does that color correction for you especially in HPS. That's where you're going to notice it the most. But in LED, if you just like have some cheap, you know, 
$5 pair of sunglasses you got at the gas station, you think you're going to go into a grow room full of LEDs, top of the line of LEDs. I'm sorry, they're not going to probably cut it. It's, your eyes are going to be hurting. You want a good pair of, uh, oh. of sun, especially if you're in the business, like you're working in a bigger grow that has multiple lights in the same room. Because where you have the over, over splash from both sides, it's even more intense. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I would really, really, really caution people to get you some good, I mean, invest in a good pair. And, and the Method 7s, I've had, I've got three pair and I've had one pair for like six years. They're beat up looking and I've dropped them a million times, but they're still functional. So yeah. I think really Spartan, you're the host just... now. So oh, yeah. if uh, you got it, you got to be looking out in case Jack's trying to. Oh, I got the power now. Watch out. Yes, that's right. Watch out. The Damocles sword. <laughs> Jack's All message right. was restrained. Did Jack get booted out of the show? I think he, uh, I he think his connection was, oh, here he is. He's back. He is back. And he is back in control. I hope it wasn't anything we said, Jack. <laughs> I hate to be conspiratorial, man, but it certainly feels <laughs> like that. I'm like, uh, I promise you we didn't try to kick you out of the room. <laughs> oh, he's frozen again. Look at this. Oh, wow. Google's like, oh, I don't, I don't really like this. Yeah, I'm not sure well, that's controversial stuff. So <laughs> the NSA frozen. is watching. Yeah, exactly. We better get back to plants. Or they're uh, gonna us down. I think it's a good time to maybe shift to the IPM portion of the show. Okay. Maybe Matthew can uh, reinform us on some of the IPM, uh, you know, PM slash uh, portraitist stuff that you've been going over so much recently on other channels. But I know a lot of the people actually don't have time to check out some of these other great channels and making content. So if we can deliver it to them here. I think it'll help at least uh, whet their interest to go see the full content on your channel and maybe see some of the stuff on FCPO too as well. That's cool. And thank you, Jack, for having the opportunity to sort of go through that stuff. That was fun for me. So I appreciate it. I'm happy. It was a, a great way to give us a topic tonight. I didn't have one in mind. I was like, I really hope Matthew and Dr. MJ come because they both just had great content come out and it's a great time to plug it and gives us a kind of uh, impromptu topic to uh, talk about cannabis related things. Appreciate it. Yeah, so absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And I also really enjoyed, um, I thought that was a really good intro. So again, I just want to reiterate for the third time now, go see that video. Very informative, great reference video too. Even if you're like, oh, you know, maybe I can't watch the whole thing. I like put that in your bookmarks or something so that when you're going out buying light or wanting to reference something, I know that I'm going to be doing that myself. So uh, yeah, so this is part of um, a presentation I have already. I'll talk a little bit about powdered mildew too. Again, you can find uh, these videos um, on my on the Future Canvas Project Zero Two or the FCP Zero Two YouTube channel, um, where I do I host the Zenthanol IPM series. But I've talked about a lot of this subject on my Instagram, on Twitter. I retweet a lot of these research reports, and I go, "Ooh, I should make a presentation with this uh, information in it." And so that's how that sometimes happens. So if you want to follow me for that info, you can do that there. But this is the ignoble rot, uh, which is a play on the fact that uh, botrytis, bud rot, or botrytis um, in grapes is think is uh, called noble rot because um, botrytis-sized grapes are sometimes used in making wine uh, because of how they affect the sugars or something to that effect. I'm sure there's other ancillary effects too, um, but yeah, botrytis-sized wine is a thing, uh, but you don't want botrytis-sized cannabis. But it's not the only thing that can affect the bud, so. 
you know, I won't go through the whole presentation, but here's some people who maybe have never encountered botrytis before. Um, you know, first of all, good job. Second of all, um, don't think that's going to happen forever. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, here at like D, for example, I, I often find like flowers that are around like within like D or um, I should have to move this. Yeah, or D or C. Um, and then E and F too as well. But like you get this like brownish sort of like necrotic tissue that develops a lot of times in the flower and it kind of grays over eventually. And that's the mycelium of the botrytis. But in some cases for a lot of plants, botrytis was probably in there a while ago, um, you know, or at least potentially it could have been because uh, botrytis has a lot of interesting um, uh, tricks. And for those who have seen my powdery mildew video that's already live at FCPO2, you'll notice that I haven't quite switched over some of these, um, uh, some of the text here, like for this here was in the powdery mildew presentation. So I'm going to be changing this somewhat as well. Um, but uh, I did want to mention here, you'll get a, a little preview of some of the presentation slides. Because uh, I think this is probably the biggest one to con for people to know. If you don't know anything else, this is like maybe the, the best primer, which is to say that there's a lot of botrytis out there. And botrytis scenario is probably the most common. Actually, is it this slide or is it this slide? Actually, both of these slides. Anyways. Um, so yeah, botrytis, there's a whole kind, there's a whole bunch of them out there. Botrytis scenario is the one that most people think of when they think of botrytis. Um, there are multiple ones that have been found in cannabis, actually. And um, there's even some strains of botrytis that are not actually pathogenic, which is wild to think about. But it seems like in the last maybe 10 or 15 years, uh, basically, we've found enough examples of botrytis strains um, in other plants, not, not cannabis, really, but in other plants where like, they're just kind of living out in the, in the tissue endophytically. Um, and then in some cases, for some, some strains, they, a physiological switch happens in the plant when it bolts. And it's not very clear to us exactly how this occurs, how this sort of perception occurs. But once they start to sort of develop and go into the flowering stage and start to develop flowers, you know, bam, botrytis is on there. It's starting to grow. You see the negative sort of like, you know, uh, sort of necrotrophic, developments where it's eating the tissue, killing the tissue. Um, whereas it was sort of docile and not really, as far as we could tell, not really doing anything uh, nefarious beforehand. So it's kind of an insidious fungus that can get into plants and like just kind of, in some cases, just stay there for a long time. And in some cases never develop a pathogenic stage like I just mentioned. Uh, but there are other fungi that can cause bud rot like sclerotinia, which is a pretty big problem. Both Botrytis and sclerotinia are in the same family. You got this diaportha and fusarium. Fusarium, uh, it's in all kinds of tissues, all kinds of plants out there. Uh, really prolific genus of fungi. And uh, penicillium as well has also been found in flower too. Um, so yeah, and you might be wondering, you know, what are some factors that contribute to bud rot? Um, I would say one of the big ones is the development of the inflorescence. So like, like how dense the bracts or whatever you know, botanical term you want to use for the calyx or, um, you know, all of the sort of um, related parts of the plant, fl the flower of the plant. Um, and uh, in fact, in some cases, there's some possibility that trichomes may even be an infection site, believe it or not. I don't think that means you should be getting rid of trichomes, but 
um, you know, sadly, it seems like in some cases uh, they can actually move through a lot of these fungi, they can actually like attach and not get harmed by the trichome and even sort of use that as sort of a branching off point, uh, which is interesting actually, considering what we think of trichomes and defense. Environment's also a big one, high humidity, a lot of surface temperature on the, on the leaf surface, on the, on the flower surface, and uh, low air circulation can facilitate that germination and growth to some of these research reports, which again, if you haven't ever consumed my presentations, I usually have a color-coded uh, text with uh, research that is related to what I'm talking about. So, um, and then the last one is wounds, of course. Also, a big part is uh, post-harvest when you're cutting up your plants and you're cutting up the, uh, uh, the flower rather, and um, you know, you're harvesting the way that you're touching the, the flower, um, you could like bruise it, you could snap off or crush or macerate certain parts of the tissue and then that can cause uh, those wounds to become infected um, and then that sort of a thing. So that's also a big thing to consider as well. Um, but I won't like bore you with too many details here. Yeah, over 1400 species um, are no, of plants are known to be colonized by botrytis. Um, yeah, I'm just going to breeze through these really quickly. Uh, yeah, basically, this is a this is from a research report. These two these two uh, excerpts, left and right, are great um, examples and great references, and they're related to the research reports that are below them, uh, left and right. And those these are really great. If you're if you're into this sort of thing, if you want to learn more about this, you know, really take a look at um, uh, these two research reports. And these excerpts are. Uh, probably one of my favorite ones from it because it kind of shows, for example, and this is actually a, a reference on the right of like uh, uh, some interesting, some very common misconceptions rather about Botrytis really that um, is common for me to come across and interact with in social media. Um, but here it is, here's just some examples from um, pathologists who, who study it basically. That like on the left here, this shows, this is a story about how uh, primula polyantha plant. So primula is a, a type of flower. And um, they inoculated them with uh, a strain of botrytis. And then they didn't see any symptoms. And then when they took a look at it and they tried to um, uh, sort of divine what's, what was in the, the tissue sample, what microbes were in it, they got a bunch of botrytis, none of which were the genotypes that they isolated with. <laughs> so they were already in the plant just the implication. Um, and so that's kind of a fascinating thing to come across. And so the more that we sort of sequence the genomes of plants and, and take a look uh, inside of them, the more that we find that there's all of these sort of botrytis and other microbes that even part of groups that are usually thought of pathogenic, but aren't. And that's why, that's why I'm such a stickler about like considering something good or bad, just simply based on the species. Um, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of fungi like fusarium for example where you've got like hundreds you know or like dozens of different species and hundreds of different population groups some of which aren't characterized so it's really like although it's tempting it's probably the case that we only know of the pathogenic botrytis so much because it's obvious it's overt it's in our face when it's a problem and all these other ones that aren't a problem we don't see because they're invisible to our eyes if that kind of makes sense so yeah, so, so common misconceptions you can take away from this video is that 
resistance isn't, isn't not common at the beginning. A lot of times botrytis is basically undetected for a big part of its life as it gets into the tissues. Um, if you don't see any mold, it doesn't mean necessarily that the plants are resistant or that you've even had pathogen death. Uh, it could be one of these cryptic strains, for example, or the pathogen just hasn't switched up that pathogenic lifestyle. Um, uh, the plants don't target the botrytis when it's in this sort of endophytic state, actually, as far as we can tell. And it isn't, it's not also very clear how much of that is like suppression from the fungus and how much of that is like, I guess you could call it still suppression or avoidance, but like for whatever reason, like it just isn't, does, is not giving off or maybe it's in a sort of a state of suspension or something like that. It's still getting nutrients, but not in a way that's like ultra damaging to the plant. And then also um, probably one of the biggest differences between botrytis and like powdery mildew is that botrytis needs plant cells to die to eat. So what it does is it, it lets the plant think or it tricks the plant into, uh, into the cells to destroy themselves. Like that would kill powdery mildew. That would kill like a virus, for example, or at least it would um, you know, not let the cell become infected and produce a bunch more virus, I should say. Um, could potentially kill it. Hmm? I was saying, I'm also really convinced that the I don't know that they're called the bud worm or something like that, but those little worms that drop down and crawl into your buds and, and die, they're they've got to be vectors for botrytis because that's you that's pretty much the only time I see it is outdoor and in those buds where you find if you take that bud apart and, and investigate, you'll find a little fucking worm in there that died or something. Are they some kind of a vector? Can they bring? Botrytis into a plant somehow, or or maybe their body decomposing somehow. There's a connection there. Absolutely. I mean, I think that. I mean, it's hard to, for me to say exactly what the pathway is always, but I, I I know that the the wounding like is probably the primary way that's being vectored. Maybe the spores were already there, you know. But like the wound or the spores could be there soon. Uh, you know, both are probably true. The, the worm sort of creates this tunnel, it creates a lot of wounding, and then through those wounds, all kinds of stuff can get in there opportunistically. Um, yeah, absolutely. In that way, I think it's probably the most, the, the most comfortable kind of vector pathway that I'm um, more confident talking about. There could be other ways too. I don't know if they like survive being ingested and then maybe concentrate in the fecal mass. I don't, you know, I don't actually know um, how much of those like molding over fecal pellets are botrytis or some other thing? Well, I wouldn't be surprised, uh, certainly. Matt, hmm. are there plants, cannabis plants, that are known to be like immune to botrytis at all? You know, um, I don't know of any. Uh, that doesn't mean that there couldn't be resistance, like I kind of put here, is sort of contextual on the right okay. here we had this disease yeah. triangle they're starting to acknowledge it in hemp with uh cornell i heard them oh, talking heard. about they're doing field resistance trials and very very few like some some years none passed but i think one of the years like one or two cultivars did show some resistance in that yeah, type of with actual with powdery mildew in particular and, and there's a there's a really great um reference from cornell for the powdery mildew video i made but so for those who are curious you could take a look at that i'm very excited to see more uh, done with that regard. But with botrytis, it's very hard to read for resistance to botrytis in particular, not the least of which because you get all these different strains, which is true for powdery mildew, but it's like 
it's very reliant on the plant cells, whereas Botrytis is like, oh, your plant is dying or stress or, you know, having all this problem. Well, that's just going to facilitate me more. Where, where powdery mildew can't survive on like dead host tissue. So in some ways, you'd rather have the powdery mildew to contend with in a way, uh, but only like only marginally better of a situation, I think. Both pretty I, rough when they're full I think, I think one way that some of this resistance occurs is also caused by other species of microbes that are either have synergistic relationships with the plant as well, like the trichoderma, for instance. There's been it's been shown that there's been uh, localized and no, non-localized responses with the inoculations. Like you could have a root drench, right, and then see a response in the leaf tissue. Uh, they yeah. some of them are endophatic, and they'll actually live in, in like some of the outer, you know, layers of the root uh, of the epidermis of the plant cells, and they'll actually inhibit some of the other chemical compounds that are produced by these other fungi by producing other metabolites that are suppressive. And so it can oftentimes be associated with other, other microbes that have symbiotic relationships with the plants that are inhibiting um, some of the activities that could be uh, associated with like the, the blooms, you know, from these fungus that cause the damage tissue and everything. I, um, I, I like that you brought that up because I think it was on Instagram. I posted a, a research report that was looking at just that for botrytis in particular. And it was interesting because they found that there was such a, was it botrytis or powdered mildew? Now I don't remember, but if you check it out on my Instagram, but yeah, what was really cool about the study that they were doing was that, um, yeah, they did check um, an array of different sort of, um, consortia essentially but one of the cool thing one of the interesting thing was that they found that um the development of different microbes changed based on uh sort of infection status and now i'm forgetting myself actually what it was about but um but yeah it, that that's definitely a factor and with the powdery mildew presentation i also uh mentioned that um there's like for example there's, there's examples of mycorrhizae that inhibit because they stimulate uh, certain signals. So they prime the plant before there's a problem just based by the presence and sort of other factors. It creates a, an immune response. But on the other hand, you can prime in the opposite way and uh, maybe have it be facilitating powdery mildew sometimes if it go if it's not the right thing. So um, not saying that primary rays is bad or anything, but that is absolutely uh, a, a critical thing and also a thing that's very hard to quantify much to much to our own chagrin and here uh, i've never seen slide. an actual study that it was i think it was probably mildew not we're talking about it matthew but it was the consortium of trichoderma like what brandon's talking about bacillus subtilis but, yeah but bacillus subtilis too and it was yeah like an over, i have over like a crazy uh it was, it was over 50 percent uh reduction in powdery mildew <laughs> The, the, so I have a, I have a couple of really good, uh, white papers on trichoderma and bacillus, uh, strains and the, and using them both together, how they're symbiotic, but I have a, a paper, it's called trichoderma species as opportunistic, a virulent plant symbiont. 
And the Trichoderma T22, the Trichoderma Harzanium T22, which is a strain that I have, uh, that I have uh, available on Bokashi Earthworks website. It's actually a rhizosphere uh, uh, competent strain. So it'll live in the rhizosphere. It will actually... In the rhizosphere actually, or in the rhizo? In the rhizosphere. It will actually um, uh, live in the first couple of layers of the root cells. So okay. it does... It, it creates some... Uh, it, it talks about... So it in, in the rhizo. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it has this specific strain is able to, sh it, it shows, um, you know, the different compounds, terpenoid, phyto, uh, uh, phyto alexins, and also different types of, you know, antibiotics and, uh, you know, different types of peptides and stuff like that, that have different kinds they just all, all they just do different types of things but it's a really cool thing because you can look at the the chart on the on the uh, presentation and it tells you exactly about how many days after inoculation they're still seeing um associated reduction in and symptoms from pathogens and like you know on tomato for example the harzanium t22 strain had protection on leaves when uh, three months after it was uh, applied, you know, they're not all that much, but it's usually between nine and 14 days are average, but some of these can, you know, proliferate and actually live uh, with the plant for, you know, pretty long periods of time. That's good stuff. And uh, Matthew, we had a question from the chat from Mad Hatter Organics, I believe. And I think that's something that you've covered in the past, but I wanted to touch on it quickly because I answered in the chat and I'm pretty sure you didn't like these, but they're asking about a product called the Intra Light, which I believe is either some UV or some other sort of light. It basically is like one of those lights that people put on the pot that goes like a ring around the pot and shoots light <clears throat> up at the plant. And they're claiming that it will keep your plant free from disease and pests. So... I figured you had some thoughts about that because I'd seen you uh, review a similar product or maybe even that exact one in the past. Oh, wow. That's yeah, even scarier than I thought. Go ahead, Matthew. Sorry. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, uh, that grin is definitely warranted. I was mostly analyzing not the product so much as the advertisement for it because I think this was from before they were available. It was like a, uh, first of all, I just hate the concept of a pre-sale in general. Um, yeah, they're still on pre-order. Burn, burn, yeah. yeah, I burned enough times in my life, and also because you just never know. So I just think that as a concept, as a consumer, it's not very consumer friendly unless you really know that you that you're gonna get it for some reason that's very specific usually. But besides that, um, I just found the wording kind of suspect to me, um, and I also sort of didn't the the logistics of how it worked didn't really make sense to me. Admittedly, I'm not a physicist, but um, you know, uh, I just I just thought that it didn't really make sense based on how like um, dense I know foliage can get. Uh, I wasn't sure how the how the amount of lights on the ring too seemed very sparse. Maybe I'm uh, misremembering, but you, you could probably check out that post I mean, you, a little while ago. You can count them. I mean, there's like less than thirty, I think, on here. So. Um... Yeah. It gets, goes for 150. It's claiming prevents mites, aphids, thrips, and much 
much more. Much, uh, much treat more. powdery mildew, botrytis, etc. Protects crops in a sixty-four cubed uh, uh, cubic feet area above each cubic room. feet, sixty cubic feet. Wow, that's yeah. uh, pretty bold. Yeah, one upfront fee for years of automated pest management. Pre-order now for twenty-five percent off. So that's a. Uh, I'm calling bullshit. What yeah. do you think about that, Doctor Coco? <laughs> yeah, I mean, is there? This is yeah. Shenanigans. Shenanigans. It sounds like shenanigans <laughs> to me. Did it show up on the screen for you guys? I hit share screen. I don't know if it like was able. Oh, to it did it because I, I see it I on YouTube, saying. but I'm not seeing it. Okay, yeah, you can wow, share it. I, I think on YouTube people were watching. Oh, they could see I it. Think, I'll, I'll show I it think, again. Just I think a good old old fashioned IPM SOP is yeah. probably your best guess when it comes to this stuff. Or UFO light. I mean, yeah. you know, it's six yeah, and one you know. less than the other, right? Like, Set it and forget mm. it. Why not, right? <laughs> yeah. My no, biggest question are, I would they're have. They're charging is, 150 bucks. So what happens? Black what happens at night? What happens at night when you have to have all your lights off? Does it just yeah, stop yeah. become effect, effective? It's like. Do the bugs just stop eating then? They're like, oh, man, I, have, I just had it. But isn't gotta this go like home. healthy plants? Bugs don't eat at night. I mean, I have a more, I think a, when the lights are on. <laughs> I have a more pressing question, and that's like, if this is powerful enough to kill bugs, how is that going to be on me when I'm walking past this fucking light all day? Well, is it going to kill them or just oh, like yeah, sort know, of right? shoo them away? I don't you know, man. Yeah. Is it, what's it like actual... to look into a UVC light? What's that like? They can't eat a lot of insects, a lot of insects are attracted to UV too. So like, it has to be enough to like harm them, or you're just making a bug, bug zapper with no zap. If you're yep. gonna point enough yeah, UV light to harm bugs up from the bottom of your tent, facing up, I mean that's gonna hurt to go in that your tent. leaves, right? Like, like what's well, gonna mean, hurt? You can't cheat physics. Oh well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, I, I suspect that those are probably UVA diodes, if anything. I, does anybody know if when you turn them on, you can see the, the light sort of? Oh, no one knows because it's pre-order, Doc. No one even has one. This is a, okay, a, well, let's a speculation. I don't want anybody okay. to buy them to, to report on this. $150. <laughs> so I think it's a big resounding uh, thumbs down for those out there who are curious. From all of us it's, it's just not wait the way and see let somebody else be a guinea pig but i'm not going to be the guinea pig on that one i don't even want them to throw their would, i don't think that's a oh, I don't girl i can't even feel investment. good yeah i can't i can't let you in my good conscience spend 150 dollars if you're listening to the show just don't don't do it to yourself it's not gonna help you out uh somebody else will do it and then they're gonna be like oh this thing fucking didn't work and then <laughs> maybe dr coco can do refund. it and <laughs> there's that one he says they're very dim <laughs> Somebody's going to put that on their plant and then they're not going to have any bugs. And then they're going to be like, the reason I didn't have any bugs was because I used this, this UV C whatever light saucer thing on my pot. But that's, you know, Proof that's positive. not going to be the reason they didn't have bugs. They just got lucky. Um, <laughs> a bit of corporate they split, they sprayed beforehand. <laughs> hey, yeah, no, that's, Hey, I don't know, Dr. Coco. That's why I keep this anti snake stone on my desk here. I know that it works because I don't see any snakes in my room. Right. Therefore, yeah. yeah. Obviously it must work. Yeah. Brandon, so that would be brilliant though. Spray some really illegal banned stuff. If you're just growing, like trying to sell a product, <laughs> you could just spray the nastiest shit. Cause you know, you're not going to smoke it. Right. It's going to kill everything. And you're going to have a pest free plant. And you'd be like, Oh, it's definitely the light. Cause no one sees 24 hours when you're posting. Right. So Man, these companies somebody- could pull some real nasty shit like that somebody had dm'd me and they're like hey you know 
you know, my friend's having some issue with this, this and that. And they went ahead and used uh, this. And I was like, dude, that's fucking a middle corporate. I was like, that's like, oh, that's boy. like sterilization. Like, that's like nuclear warfare on everything. It's like so bad. It's a systemic pesticide. It's so fucking toxic. It kills bacteria, microbes inside. Basically sterilizes, you know, shit. And it was like, and so my response was, was it a your friend is, I just told him that they were an asshole. For the anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty noxious. I actually, I saw a report recently that, uh, you know, just adding insult to injury for the ecology. It doesn't just hurt like, um, you know, plant parasites like insects where uh, there, it was showing that, um, this lady beetle that eats powdery mildew. Well, what'll happen is when you, when you apply imidacloprid to a plant, not that I advocate people doing this, but um, it'll leach into, it'll get absorbed by like powdery mildew. And then this like lady beetle that eats powdery mildew comes along, eats powdery mildew and dies. And you know, this happens a lot with like poisons. That's why like rat poison bait is kind of contentious because it's the like, it's, come and eat it. And, yeah, it's not great. It's the kind of molecule that doesn't, did degrade well you know so it's going to end up being it's going to go down that food chain and it's going to poison everything another way of saying that it has a long half-life it just sticks around accumulates yeah yeah Yeah. it sounds like some nasty stuff i mean i'm sure it's banned in all the legal cannabis states because pretty much everything else is it is it is it's what was in uh mallet Remember that old the the people used to use it back in the day. It was called mallet, and they would drench their soil or spray with it, not really knowing what it was. They sold it at the at the hydro uh, store, at the grocery store. Is it the Home Depot? Got that Home Depot tech? Is mallet in midacloprid? I'm not trying to question everything you said. <laughs> Sorry, but I thought that was something else. But I think oh, I think it was. I think that's what it was. I might be mistaken, but I just it, you know it's been so long. Uh, yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't doubt that you're uh, it is, correct. Mal, it and, is, yeah. You're correct. Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to say, uh, if it wasn't that, some other product was being sprayed. and Oh, it, yeah. You know, or or under, it was that product under a different name because yeah. people were doing it for a reason. And this was long before a lot of testing was demanded. Thank goodness. I really advocate California, Prop 215, the medical days. That's when the first testing I saw uh, available to patients started rolling around. It wasn't everywhere. You had to ask for it and you usually had to pay for it. You had to go to a little bit fancier dispensary or whatever. But you could get lab tests for heavy metals, molds, mildews, pesticides and things like that. As long Most as people in California ago. weren't do, doing it like before it became mandatory though. Like I remember, I remember when farm labs opened up and I was like, fuck yeah, dude, I can finally test my weed. This is awesome. You know, and I was going down there and I was doing like terpene tests, but even back then, like it wasn't mandatory and because it was still just medical. There was no prop 64 or anything. Well, and they would do like one test and then probably sell that strain as that test for the entire year. But uh, oh, yeah, yeah. it's at least better yeah. than the people who had nothing in those days when it was just like, hey, I got this and <laughs> do you want to buy some? Yeah. And uh, a lot safer consumption for a lot of the people out there. I, I appreciate it as a patient having that access because you could choose. It's like, well, do I want to pay a little bit more and have the access to the testing or pay a little bit less and not get the full information? And I think that's kind of what drew me to terpenes early on because a few places did show terpene tests, even though it's still not mandated. It's mandated in Oklahoma, but not in California. Yeah, dude. Oklahoma has pretty strict regulations when it comes to the testing because you have to do, for flour, you have to do mycotoxins, 
pesticides, uh, yeast and molds, bacteria, uh, terpene tests, cannabinoid tests. And then if you're doing uh, other stuff, you have to do like residual solvents, uh, pesticides. Did I say that already? Yeah, we have so all that know. except for the terpenes. I wish we would add terpenes onto the list. I know that makes batches. it already more difficult for the people because it's really difficult in the market currently with so many yeah. regulations, but it would definitely benefit the uh, patients at the end of the day. And some brands are doing it here in California. Like I, I can yep. go pull some products. My wife works at a legal spot and she gets lots of samples and many of them have like top three or top five terpenes listed. So it's, um, I mean, how much to dedicate the money to it. It, it, it's really, in my opinion, uh, you know, the terpene percentage or the terpene content is it, for me way more, uh, important than the amount of thc now i'm not saying it's it's more important as the overall total cannabinoid profile but it's just as equal uh, as important because i don't need to smoke weed that has 30 percent thc i just need something that's really terpy and has at least some thc right Russ? yeah but yeah. you know that there's we don't smoke get, hemp right no but even if you have something right. that has really high cbd cbg you know if right. you have, at least no like right. a, a more diverse you you know the effects are different if you have a more diverse as as Terpenes opposed and... to just like your dominant cannabinoid just being thc right, right. Yeah, people yeah. should try it because i tried cbd smoking it my, i worked at a delivery service for two or three years in that property 15 day and uh, we were one of the very few people in San Diego that was pushing a lot of CBD at that time because it just wasn't super popular. It doesn't get people high. It's more for the medical community. If you have a lot of pain, if you have seizures, epilepsy and things like that. Uh, for me personally, it would actually bring my high completely down. Like I'd be sailing super stoned, happy as fuck, feeling great on my THC cannabis. And then my boss would be like, Hey, you should try this, you know, Harless or <laughs> sour. Well, that would stopped right away if I was that guy. But I want to mention that New York, before they even started testing, they already loosened up the, te the microbial tests. Uh, someone was just pointing that out to me today that uh, like they didn't even start testing yet. But what they were uh, planning to be testing for, they already lessened the, um, you know, lightened up the. Do you know, uh, like the CFM or CFU? I can find unit. it. I'll find it on their website. Michigan had back. like 10 and 50K. And then I think they also it's lobbied here against it. In Oklahoma, it's 10. The thing is, like, I, I like that, that they're even looking at it because, like, it pushed a lot of people to start having their trimmers wear masks, for example. If people are just breathing on it, they had people, like, trimmer without the mask versus trimmer with the mask. They did side-by-side -side experiments at a few operations out here, and they could see if somebody was trimming without a mask on, the microbial count was much higher because maybe it's just that person has some stank-ass breath, but maybe just people in general, they're talking, <laughs> eating on the bud, things like that. But if you can have a measurable... There, see if if it has to be under 10k that's actually relatively low and one of the other things like kevin mckernan from uh, medicinal genomics points out that they should be really specifically testing for like aspergillus and like harmful things because not all cfus yes. are negative yeah. certain ones and aren't going to be and harmful that, and that's i i 100 agree with that too because if you're using biocontrol agents that are microbial based that have no known uh metabolites that are going to be toxic or harmful to people but it might be something that they would test as just like total bacterial count or total you know it, it doesn't make sense to count those in the same category you know it immediately it, it really makes... a lot of organic producers out where a yeah, lot of absolutely. organic producers could not produce at that low of a level in certain markets or they'd have to really well, you, 
you adjust. should be able to because I do it and I and nobody that I work with has any issues with microbials and we use them regularly, you know. Well, so. but some people are sensitive though, right? Like I think that's I think that's what it gets to is like is uh we don't want a lot we don't want friendly fire, right? We don't want to be saying that the people growing with the good microbes are doing bad things. And also people get really freaked out about germs. They don't like know necessarily you know, what's going on, or they don't necessarily trust a company, you know, somebody tells them, oh, don't worry, these are like the good bacteria. For some people, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, okay. But they might not really know really what's going on. And, and that's a scary place to be. It's understandable. On the other hand, though, you know, some of these microbes can't, that are bad, uh, they can't be cultured, even, yep. you know, so, so on top, like powdery mildew, obligate biotrophe. Uh, not that I mean that's kind of a weird example but for pathogens. Like you can't. So it can't be cultured. You can't detect yeah, it in like a it. lab test. Essentially, no. it's only going to be on live tissue, so it can't be live tissue. So, so you yeah. can't. Yeah. So you can't test for that even. And that, not that you're testing for that like in this circumstance, but you know, like aspergillus, you know, aspergilliosis. That's a problem. You know, that's a major. They test problem for that in that, California. That's one of the ones yeah. that they test for. There's like five mycotoxins that they specifically test for on top yeah. of, I think they have a CFU count that they do look at, but I think it's more specifically looking for uh, the mycotoxins because we have outdoor harvests out here that, I mean, are grown under the full sun. You know, there's fucking birds shitting and things like that. Like the dirt and dust that kicks around. There's wildfires here, like literal smoke hitting oh, yeah. the plants from who knows what burnt down. Uh, buildings, plastics, oh, yeah. and all sorts of chemical yeah. nastiness that can get on a plant, but they still somehow can, a lot of them pass. Some of those crops get destroyed or turn into concentrate. It found a lot of grapes, you know, when we had the fires, all the, all the, when we had them, all the times that we've had fires. Uh, and I'm, it's very true for cannabis too. You know? It's a downstream so, uh, effect. It's just like yeah. part of living in a state that has wildfires is that we have that consequence in those regions when it happens. And it's, I hate to say it's like part of the thing. It's like in the area of the country that we have uh, tornadoes, tornado alley. It happens and it's unfortunate what happens, but it's, that's one of the, I guess, things that goes along with living in those regions. And it makes it more difficult at times to cultivate in those places. Like Florida just got hit by hurricanes. I saw a lot of Florida growers uh, sharing their advice, their tips, like even just like what to stock the freezer with and things like that, like how to live through this. And I, I appreciated that seeing the community come together um, with their best advice. Like people are like, I've, I'm a native Floridian. I've lived here for 20 years. Like here's my top 10 things to do before the hurricane gets here. And uh, people in the comments were all sharing lots of advice. Like one of the things I said was throw a gallon of water in the freezer because when your electricity cuts off, eventually that gallon, whether it's a single gallon bottle or a bunch of individual water bottles, it'll keep your freezer cold, like an ice box or ice chest. And as it melts, you have water to drink later on. And so it's got a dual purpose there, but there's lots of great advice there. And I love to see the community come together for stuff like that, especially considering there are, I guess it seems like more uh, natural disasters happening these days, but I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of all that because who knows, my internet might get pulled for me again. And uh, it just, it comes with your territory. You know where you live, what kind of, uh, natural weather like matthew always advocates like he can't just say oh everybody buy an intralight and then i'll be out of business because all the pests and mildew will all be gone because this light is just going to be 100 percent effective and there will be no need for ipm anymore which is like kind of their claim which it sounds ridiculous to say but that's sort of what they're putting out there it's like oh this thing is going to be the cure-all to all pests and, and disease. silver bullet yeah silver bullet right i will say that uv uv light can have beneficial effects and and um i forget if we talked about it here we talked about oh i think i talked about it with 
on my powdery mildew video with uh, Chad yeah. Westport. He was like, talk, we were talking about how the Dutch and their Dutch greenhouses use UV light and other people too. It's on like a so, boom yeah. though. It, they, yeah, they it's come on a boom. Over, yeah, it's, I don't wanna, it's waved I just want over. to, yeah, I, it's, it's done in a very particular way with, and as Dr. Coco has mentioned in the comments, you know, you know, with care so that you don't like blind yourself or harm other people. You know, it's a it's what we call in the IPM space a physical control. It's doing direct physical damage. Those that radiation is penetrating through. It's causing oxidative reactions in your cells, basically boiling your cells to death, um, and also causing DNA damage. Both of those things are not great for life forms on Earth. And the like I've said many times in the show, it's like one of the first things that things eking out of the ocean had to contend with is um you know uv damage because the surface of the earth at that time was there was no foliage yet right so <laughs> you know it was like a death valley but worse i think uh, fortunately for you matthew that the intralight isn't going to be the uh, silver bullet for the ipm community and, and put all ipm specialists out of business because um it's just there's so many various pests and every single environment is different life finds a way jack yeah. And, and like certain environments, people are just going to deal. I know people that will say like in certain parts of Humboldt or Oregon, they have such massive outdoor plants and they don't for plant count reasons want to cut down um, to more smaller plants that are a little bit better managed. They say, Oh yeah, I'm going to lose five to 20% of my harvest to rot, whether it's PM or Botrytis, but I'm harvesting a 12 pound plant. So <laughs> I'm still going to have 10 pounds worth of dank bud. And I'll throw away the stuff that gets rot. And that's just part of learning to grow and deal with it in their environment, learning to time. Sometimes people will pull right when that first rain comes. Sometimes people push it another week or two weeks or five weeks, whatever it is. So it's a, a delicate dance, I guess, at times to try and avoid some of these things that uh, some of the people in the chat were literally putting vomit emojis because they were so sick, <laughs> sickened by seeing the Bortritis and uh, have dealt with it personally. And so, some people are trying so, to bury their heads and hopefully never have to see it. But uh, it's good to know Jack, about it, how to fight it. Jack, I found the article that the guy was talking about and it was uh, it came out today. I'll read you the first paragraph. So the Office of Cannabis Management this afternoon eliminated its marijuana testing limits for bacteria, yeast and mold. This after conditional marijuana growers voiced concern that the majority of them cannot pass the strict rules required by the state and therefore wouldn't be able to get their product onto store shelves to open the market. An OCM email sent to cultivators on Tuesday announced wow. the office has updated its laboratory testing limits oh, documents to remove, New York. remove the pass-fail limits associated with the total viable aerobic bacteria count and total yeast and mold count for extract, unextracted cannabis products. The agency went on to say that the labs will still need to do these tests, but there will not be a defined limit for uh, unextracted cannabis products in the adult use program. It is now the responsibility of the licensee to consider these test results and any impact to the stability and expiration dating of their products, as well as any risks of health to the customers. So they're basically saying, you guys can do whatever you want. We'll tell You gotta get it tested, but then it's up to you if you wanna take it off the market or not. Or if you want to, uh, what you want to do with it. So that's like kind of crazy. I like that they're at least going to be creating records. So you know, and yeah, problem. they're still. They're it's still probably a guide to get a limit. Early on, I'm sure to like they're weaving their way through all the technicalities in New York right now, and 
Like if they found it, 60,000 people were getting sick every time above 60,000 CFUs or whatever, for some reason, like 100,000, put a number on it. Let's say 50,000 is one of the markers in Michigan. 10,000 was the medical marker, if I'm remembering correctly. But if those numbers have some consistent, reliable way of saying, if people use this, even if they're immunocompromised, they're more likely to be injured or damaged by the cannabis, then they're going to probably set a cap on it or at least make people aware of it. Like, hey, this is above a certain yeah. count. And if you are one of those people who is immunocompromised, then you shouldn't. And like one of the things that Matthew had mentioned in the past was um, certain stuff maybe not um, burning off. But one of the cases that I saw with like aspergillus in particular, the person was using a vaporizer because they were immunocompromised. And at the lower temperatures of a vaporizer, it definitely was able to transfer into their lungs and ended up causing that person to pass. So um, sometimes... And not that smoking, it would have <laughs> prevented that. But um, I, I do wonder, I, I haven't looked into all the research, but I think that in certain cases, smoking it may actually be able to kill off some of the stuff, but it's not a way to advocate people to consume uh, adulterated or dirty products in any way. Like I, when I have portritus mold, mildew, I cut it out and throw it out. I don't even try to make it into concentrate. Don't even try to clean it up personally. Um, some people I understand if you're going to lose your entire harvest or whatever, and you need to get some medicine out of it. Um, if that's your only way to go about doing it, then some people think that you have to do what you have to do. Uh, other people would say, get your next harvest going and <laughs> get to it. But it, it really, everyone's situation is so different. I so think, I think my biggest concern with the, with that would, would be like, if a company knew they had mold, what are they pro- trying to do to prevent it? They're probably spraying shit on there. And like, you know, yeah. if they take something that to, to market that has mold and they're irradiating it willing to spray stuff well no i think yeah it's what brandon's saying it's just in a way it's like an indicator that they're probably doing all of these other things that That, might be kind of yeah that might be kind of gross also and then doing this other thing most of canada's blood for a long time was like that right they were basically irradiating all of it because their levels for microbials were extremely low demand and so they were basically just Put it like microwaving or it happens, radiating. Man, it happens here in Michigan. It's just the, the big corporate companies that, yeah, just, I think they just Soil King does that, problem. doesn't he? They just run, he has through like the a whole microwave. like, That's yeah, <laughs> yeah. I he, think he, they were, yeah, too. The whole like, oh, if your weed does didn't, if you sucked at growing your weed and you didn't take proper care and do your due diligence and the shit's messed up, oh, we'll just run it through this machine and fix it for you. And okay, I, don't do think, that I don't know about that characterization. Yeah, I don't it doesn't like even that. fix. It doesn't fix the root cause of the issue. All it does is change the results from a testing perspective. Well, it gives them a saleable product, and unfortunately, a lot of them, like you're saying, aren't making the adjustments on the back end to prevent it in the first place, which is mm-hmm. something that we all have potential for work in this industry, if you so choose or want it, to uh, you know consult with some of these people. Uh, a lot of people don't want to give them good SOPs or help them set up and be successful, but um, if you are looking for a place in the industry and you are able to successfully cultivate and avoid these issues, uh, you can consult with groups like that that are struggling and find yourself a little bit of work within the industry if you so choose to find that. I know a lot of people that's like their dream. And then I know, also know a lot of people that got into the industry, thought it was like uh, the dream and then maybe feel like it's different after having experienced it firsthand. I, I guess if you make anything a job, it can become uh, more tedious and less enjoyable. Like if it really is your passion and you love it 100%, uh, some people can make it their job and it doesn't become uh, tedious and redundant. But for other people, depending on the position you're at, it might seem like a dream from the outside looking in and then you get into this position and uh, 
it's not as Someone's glorious as it might what have to do. I've always yeah. felt like it's a combination of like the world you were born in no longer exists and also like like you're saying Jack like is like you know even if you're passionate about this there's a lot of like sort of not, like you know not sexy things about cultivation that you know you have to do and especially at scale necessarily even if you're trying to do things really responsibly right even more so right um so like cleaning up for of, example i mean you're, up, for example yeah a glorified Hygiene, basic spartans yeah. mentioned this they were mopping floors a lot of the time and, and just delete like doing literal just physical labor um, yeah farming well, is laborious but if you have a passion exactly. to, in growing if you have a passion to grow cannabis and, and you would like to or if you dream or you like to maybe do that at a professional level i would encourage you to do so but go in there with a mindset of like what i did when i walked in there i just like i would love you know I knew that I didn't have the capital to have my own grow. So I wanted to go in there and learn, okay, what do I need to know? What's different about a large grow compared to the grows I'm used to growing. I've grown some pretty large grows outdoor, but that's a whole different thing. And um, I learned a lot. I learned a lot, a lot, a lot. I didn't have an ultimately great ending there. I had to walk away from it, but I, I walked away with my head held high and I had a lot more knowledge than I had when I, you know, walked in there. So I would encourage people not to look at it like uh, even if you go and, and say you it's not what you think, you know, and you're going to get some of that for sure. Like what Matthew said, he, he said it a lot better than what I did. But, you know, it's kind of like meeting your 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 idols. Don't never meet your idols because then you're going to realize they're just humans and they have their own faults. But uh, it's the same kind of thing. You're going to see some things in there that aren't so fun. But at the same time, you're going to learn so much. So uh, don't feel like even if you have to walk away, that uh, it's a failure in any way. As long as you walk away with with new knowledge, then then it's a win. Look at Miss Nudie Grows. She went from home grower on this show to a grower at a commercial facility in Canada. Didn't necessarily love the situation, but she learned from it. Went to another facility. Didn't love it. Learned from it. Went to another facility. And in the meantime, her home grow, she won uh, like Women's Cup and Grower Cup in Canada for like best CBD strain and like best uh, female grower. And on top of that, got hired at a new spot, a Stewart Farms, where she seems to love it. You know, they like make bath bombs. She uses them all the time at home. So she's using the product that she's growing at work and really seems to enjoy it. She has a lot more control. They're doing like aquaponics and things over there, doing it in a way that she uh, seems to really enjoy it. We got no other grow jumping in here. Just a second. But um, I'm proud of her to see her growth. And she chased that dream despite, you know, they say if you get knocked down, you got to get back up kind of thing. Right. And uh, initially she had the dream. She's a home grower. She loves it. She was passionate about it. Went to that commercial facility and maybe things weren't exactly how she expected it to be and it wasn't like she left like day one you know she grinded and stuck around and like spartan learned a lot from it grew from it and it builds the resume too you you can't say oh i can grow cannabis at a commercial scale without having something on your resume to prove it if you have uh, some photos of yourself at a thing or if you have a uh, on your resume you can say like oh yeah call my old boss i worked there for two years at this place and we produced this amount of cannabis this amount of plants this is when i worked this was my schedule like i treated it like a real job like Spartan, I know just by listening to him, he treated it like a real job. It's not like something that it's like, oh, yeah, it's it's cannabis. It's, it is fun. There's a lot of fun, but you got to show up. You got to do the work. And uh, so it's important to keep that in yeah. perspective that it is work at the same time. It can be your dream. And it's uh, there are opportunities out there that even if your first one isn't perfect to continue to keep looking because this industry is continuing to grow and expand and change. Every single state's got different uh, legislation you can literally vote with your feet and move to a different state if you don't love where you're at there might be more opportunity somewhere else and if that's not possible yep, that's what i did 
I had to. I couldn't even get a job working as a trimmer in the legal market in California because of my record. And that wasn't something that was going to exclude me out here in Oklahoma. Which ironically is from cannabis charges. So it's not like, for those who don't know Brandon's history, but yeah, just anybody in California who has a criminal record isn't going to have access to working in the legal market, whether it's for cannabis. And some people who've gotten expungement, there is like very, very limited, but they have this programs where people that were impacted by um, crime have been able to get out and then like get equity programs. But unfortunately, from what I've seen, how it's actually rolled out, a lot of those get taken advantage of by big MSOs and companies that kind of buy out these licenses and and equity program just means that they had shitty uh, legislation to begin with that was exclusive. Yeah, I guess you wouldn't need an equity program if it was fair in licensing for people to uh, apply and actually have a chance to get a license without being a multimillionaire or billionaire, which seems to be the case in many states like Florida and California, unfortunately, for the small mom and pops who want to get in. Like Michigan at least has like a microproducer's license, but I've even seen like MedGrower over there was posting recently about how uh, changes in prices are making things difficult for um, even the microproducers over there who've been doing things for many, many years successfully and been able to keep business afloat and running comfortably. Um, prices change, electricity costs go up, everything, uh, things are different. You know, even fertilizer costs are increasing. So the um, mathematics that have to be done to understand if you actually want to or not not want to, if you can be in business at this level, like I really like how Brandon is able to do it um, in the greenhouse level, especially even outdoor, keeping cost of inputs low and uh, keeping the quality extremely high. So you get a desirable product that people really want, but it's coming at a lower cost per pound, essentially. But you can still demand. About it. I'm telling you, once federal legislation is passed for cannabis, it's going to be an agricultural commodity, just like apples. And the majority of people are going to just be consumed consumers just like they consume alcohol on a budget you know what i mean bud light I mean, obviously pretty much all the other be, beer yeah uh, there's going to be brands that are built that have good recognition that have good quality and that people are like this is the the highest standard of cannabis but you're gonna have to work really really hard and be really consistent with your uh, cultivation practices to like maintain that uh that brand visibility and that that aspect of the the business I definitely see a I little agree. bit like the brew model, but go ahead, no other girl. We haven't even welcomed you in, so welcome. Glad you can make it. Hey, welcome. I agree, but uh, and it's already it's already trending that way. I mean, when I was you know in seventeen in tenth grade, ninth you know ninth grade, whatever, when I first started smoking, sixteen, it was forty bucks an eight, and like weed is one of the only commodities in the world right now that's worth less than when I went there. You know, gas was a dollar a gallon then, so it's already trending in that direction. But if you had to bet, what would you bet when it is federal legal? Oh, well, when exactly? You're gonna have. You're gonna have. Here's the thing. You're gonna have import from places like Colombia. If we allow it, though, we do shit like we we do things. It does. It might. It might have a high tariff or taxes associated with it. But we don't know what that's gonna shape up. But if you, we already do that with agricultural products, anyways, right? So. It's yeah, still going to be mean, super. So you, I think Brandon's right. I here. agree. The cost is going to go down, but I do think we'll have like a brewery kind of model where there's going to be like the local IPA where people are going to want will some exist, locally grown, higher quality craft yeah. stuff. But then there's going to be most people drinking the Bud Lights, the Miller Lights, the Coors Lights, the stuff that most like. I, this is, this is what I predict. Right. I predict. I predict 
that what will happen is a really large corporation will come in and they will basically be an umbrella for a bunch of legacy brands that distribute multiple legacy cultivators that would be like your craft breweries and stuff like that. And then they have a, that way they give those brands the visibility similar to what they do with like wine. Cause there's a couple of it's happening companies. with craft brewing. The big like uh, the big exactly. brewers have bought out all the craft breweries, but that said, you just grown. small craft breweries, and there's still yeah, people that do home brew and and yep. and that's nano a brew good analogy. I think and to how the weed market will develop. Yeah, and I just so want to give Spartan a chance because I know this is a conversation we could talk about for two hours. I know this is a, a great one to get into, but Spartan, maybe we've next got week. about 15 minutes left, and you got to yeah. get heading over to the Michigan Bros Grow Show here in a little bit. So I want to give you a little bit of a chance to give any final thoughts you had before you have to uh, give your uh, shout outs and sign out. No, I mean, I think we've we've kind of went over, you know, general thoughts on our, our what we think is going to happen when legalization falls. I mean, it's going to be a huge consolidation in the market for sure. But I honestly think that there's going to be a, uh, that as long as legislation can get pushed or to help get some protections, I think there's going to be a lot of room for craft cannabis at a small scale um, because of the freshness factor, because of how quickly you can go from a harvested plant to you know a tested compliant product that goes into a customer's hand you know we're not talking months on the shelf that's why when i do go to a dispo which is not very often i drive past a bunch of dispos to get to one that is one of those craft um licenses and uh, i personally know the owner and he walked me through the first time i went through there and i've been through that grill several times now so it makes me super comfortable to shop there. You're just not going to get that anywhere. I mean, you're not going to get that at a big giant place. Not likely. So um, I don't know. I no think no MSO is doing that. that. Right, right, right. So I think that, that that experience would even more, I mean, he, he this isn't the case here. His prices are very competitive, but I was going to say that would even warrant a higher price to me. I would rather pay for that experience than, than you know, get a cheap, you know, if you pay cheaper, you're going to get a cheaper experience usually yeah so that's kind of my my take on that but uh, yeah i do got to get going i got to get the dogs outside i got to go to the bathroom <laughs> but uh you guys can catch me on the mr Rose grow show next um at about in about 15 minutes but otherwise you know it was awesome hanging with you guys yet again good to see you dr coco <laughs> and hopefully we can encourage everybody else to come on more often too it makes it better for youtube for sure and uh shout out to chat man as always chat Peace out, everybody, and uh, keep growing. Much grower love, Spartan. Always, buddy. Great to see you. Have a great one. Later, man. Yeah, he brings up a great point. And uh, I admit, I had not thought about that uh, because that's the way I, why I have my room staggered. I used to I used to just put everything in my flower room. It's way easier to do it that way, too. Way easier. Way easier to clean, put everything in there. But just because I don't want to have two-month-old cannabis, um, you know, I know a lot of people think that, you know, prefer it that way, but I'm a way more proponent of fresh cannabis. So that's an interesting point that I hadn't thought of. And uh, I will push back. I, I, I like the it. best selling cannabis in California right now is Cannabiotics CBX. And if I was to go grab a jar from the other room, it would be tested within the last two weeks. Their stuff gets to the shelf within days of when it's jarred cured and everything from the harvest it is the freshest and that's the reason it sells the yeah. most they don't sell Do you small. mean best is in like most sales or they sell the most but it is the best quality i've tried thousands 
between first between this first place and second place how big of a gap do you think it's not there it's like uh it's tough to say because every single i know i know is different but their stuff drops on friday and it's sold out by monday not a single other brand in the market with flowers like that right now so there's probably doing some other things right too besides just the fact that it's Oh, they, I, they agree. Ton, I agree right? with Dr. They Cook grow there. good strains. They're, they have their own unique cultivars. They've done their own crosses. Like their cereal milk is not the common cereal milk out there. It's a cereal milk from a small breeder that they pheno hunted and it is special. Like I'm a snob. I wouldn't just push something because it's like uh, hype. I hate hype shit most of the time, but cannabiotic cereal milk is fucking Yeah, no, I'm just saying there's a lot company. of things they're doing right. It's not, it, it's hard to attribute that to one, any one fact. No, I totally agree. It, but that's just to counter to the point of, he was saying the freshness is going to be what sets aside the commercial, the craft producer from the commercial producer. They're producing yeah. at a large scale. They've been killing it and uh, they started, well, they're like Southern Californians, but they went to uh, Nevada, crushed it in Nevada, and then they with the money and stuff that they made learning the licensing scheme came back to California and yeah. dominated the market. You they, know, don't smalls, I know. they don't sell quarters. They don't sell halves or ounces. They sell eighths only. And it's mm, all glass that's jars. That's how they make the money. Yeah. Yeah. And they sell anything that's small buds or an undesirable gets turned into concentrate or edibles. That's the way it yeah. should be. You know, a lot of people I, I know are now going to mail order. They're getting their stuff in the mail. You can do that here. Well, not a lot Antibiotics of delivered it to my people. front door. Uh, with a little cooler that was cannabotics branded you could order it on their website and because they have vertical integration they have somebody who owns the grow they have somebody who owns the distribution and somebody who owns the delivery service so they were able to link that up where technically it wasn't supposed to be legal but it happens the most comprehensive business models is to have it vertically integrated you don't want it like you were saying the testing uh it it will sit on Elves like uh, shout out to Aaron the grower. He's been fucked by metric in Oklahoma because he had one of his strains sit in metric for like a month and a half. So it wasn't his fault. Like he sent it to metric. It got tested. Like he got like four or five of his strains back, but one of them sat for like a month and a half for who knows what reason. But it's just like shit like that really hurts the micro cultivator when he has yeah. a big harvest and a big batch that's just sitting waiting for metric to get back where yeah. the big guy. Yeah, they don't sweat that at all. But somebody like him who has like micro crafts, like small batch growing the best stuff he can on a you know he's bootstrapping it he's doing it all like family owned like no outside investors and everything like that and it's uh it's definitely a tough uh industry to be in but i'm happy to see him it seems like he's having success he's getting lots of drops out there uh brandon you are as well so i know that it's possible to do it right and have success in the market but it's very difficult and you have to i think have the experience and know how and realize what is important you know keeping those costs down but uh, also producing an excellent quality at the end of the day both things are important you need to be affordable and also be good it's uh, I gotta go a little bit early. That's so perfect, man. Go ahead and give your final thoughts. Wanted to say, say thanks for having me, everybody. Nice to see you, Doctor MJ. And uh, if anybody's interested in any of the products, uh, all available at www.bokashiearthworks.com. I'll talk to you guys next week. Girl love, Brandon. Peace out, Girl Brandon. Love, everybody. Great having you as always, man. Keep up the great work. Later, man. Noah the Girl, I know you got in here on the later end, and um, I know you've been doing this for a long time, and recently you've uh, switched. Has, have you noticed any of your costs of production went down, switching from your old style to your new style? Um, or is it about you the know, same? that's tough, because I uh, I bought a uh, a pallet of soil so that I, you know, uh, it's like a living soil type thing. It's kind of hard to get. It's actually uh, made in New York, and so I uh, actually... Um, 
ordered a whole pallet of it. So the cot, you know, dirt is one of my main costs, but you know, my bulbs are, are, are kind of high right now, you know, and, and the stuff that I'm using to mend my soil with is been pretty stable. So I would say I haven't really noticed it either way, but it's really hard. You know, I forked out quite a bit of money and put up that upfront cost to have that, uh, you know, pallet of soil. And, you know, I haven't had to buy any for a while. And that was one of my big costs for the longest time. I bought, I'm glad it's at least working uh, for you. Are you reamending? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I amend it. Uh, but th- right now I'm just kind of like, uh, the amended stuff I'm using outside and I'm like saving it. I might, you know what I mean? But like right now I have been using fresh, but, uh, like I used to get 10 bags of ocean forest for a hundred bucks, no tax, just right out the door. I know the owner and literally as soon as COVID happened, it immediately went up to 130. And then I seen the deal on the the soil that I got and it was only like maybe $3 more a bag. So I just said, okay, I'm just going to buy it. I'm going to get it delivered. I have it here. I don't have to go to the store every month and a half to whatever, two months, whatever. So, um, yeah, so it's kind of hard to say it's, it's hard. You know, it's funny. I was already thinking about the other day, like, you know, cause I'm kind of a nerd like that. I wanted to do the math on it. I have to break it down and kind of figure out how much, you know, I use per light, how much soil. And it's, it's been difficult because before with the bottle nutrients, like I knew this bottle, this bottle, this bottle cost this, and I kind of knew what it was, but so it's been a little bit more challenging with that pallet, you know, figuring out the backward calculation on what the actual costs of cultivation are. So I'm just happy it's at least working out for you. Now some people struggle with the transitions and it seems like you made it relatively smoothly and you're back to crushing it again, even though you're basically doing an entirely different system, even though somewhat related and, uh, it's cool to see. Here you are in the grow room, so I'm going to spotlight you because this is always one of my favorite portions of any show when uh, we get to check out cannabis plants. No, if you turn your phone to the side, it'll uh, maybe give us the full boom. Right like there. that? Yeah, yeah. Now we got full screen. Now yeah. I was going to joke that maybe if the lights costs keep going up, maybe uh, Dr. MJ could uh, point you in the right direction for an LED one of these days. I know you've been uh, waiting, 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 and it yeah. might finally be the time. It might be. Uh, I've done some, uh, I've done some research on it. And, uh, you know, I don't really, he knows way more than me. I'd, I'd ask, you know, one of you guys, you guys all know more than me about it. I just, I set this room up a long time ago and, uh, it's, it's been kind to me. So I haven't really messed with anything for a long time, but, uh, yeah, you know, you gotta, I know you gotta evolve. I understand that. So doc, like, how would you do it? Would you go one light at a time? And if you had to, um, you, you don't have to say, I've heard if you give recommendations to give them in threes, if you had to give a top three grow lights to replace a thousand watt HPS, if you could rattle out any of them off the top of your head, I'd hate to put you on the spot. Which is, I would approach this from coverage area. How, how wide is that row that you're covering? Four feet. All right. So, feet. and how good is the reflection off the, the side that you're standing on? Do you close something up and is there a reflection coming back or is it just kind of open no. on that side? It's open on the side that the side that I'm standing on. Obviously, the camera is open. Okay, so you would want to cover it probably with a you know six to eight hundred watt light, um, which would be a hundred and twenty inch or a hundred and twenty centimeter frames. So these are like lights designed for five by five grow tents. Yep. Um, and you'd want to run them if it's if it's open on that side. You'd want to run them probably every four and a half feet on center. Um, so less than every five feet because you're going to be losing a lot of light off of that that front edge. Um, how long is the room? 
You know, that's a good question. I believe it's 16 feet, though. It's been a long time since I did the room, but I'm okay. pretty sure it's 16 feet. So you could probably fit four of them in there. So they four 650 watts, 700 watts, somewhere in that neighborhood lights. Um, and right now you're running four HPS hoods. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, yeah, four 4,000 watts. And my buddy... Yeah, uh, so exactly. You, you'd go from, a you know, basically 60% of the electricity that you're using now. Because those 1,000 watts actually pull a little over 1,000 watts, yeah. right? It's like up to 1150 when they kick on, but at running, they're probably closer to like 1,050 or 1,100. 1,050, 1,060. Usually the bulb is 1,000 DC. And the driver requires usually, you know, 1,060, 1,070 in order to, of AC in order to generate that 1,000 of DC. Okay. Yeah. Looking uh, good. They yeah, do look one, damn good. I, that's the one thing I, whenever I see that's HPS what I girls, just they're almost always growing fire. That's yeah. what I just posted right there on my Instagram page. But uh, my buddy who, so I know the guy who owns the biggest grocery store around here. Like I know the, of all of them they all know me by name i know the owner and they yep. had a special going on uh gavita's leds and he said that he was knocked out of the park with those gavita leds but uh you know i don't know anything about it but they're overpriced they're great lights but they're just overpriced yeah, expensive, right? yeah. yeah even if on you got set, a super discount maybe but yeah i think yeah, he, doc probably has other light recommendations on his site that like the geek beast was one i remember that had a pretty large light that put out amazing amounts of light for an insanely low cost so that doc, was one of the best what, i remember seeing test wise what do you think about 2500 to switch it all out at once approximately depends on which lights you want if you really wanted to do this on a budget there are five by five lights like that that you know you can get for less than 500 bucks right now and you're oh, only talking okay. about you're only talking about four of them four of them so that's so even cheaper, less yeah. than two grand for the for just the, the cheap, light swap efficient. out and what are you running for ac in there oh i got a thirty-eight thousand btu uh mini right. split <laughs> See, this is where you're really going to cut into the the savings. Mm -hmm. You're going to be able to run that at about 60% of what you have been running that along with all of the lights. So it's not just the, the savings on the efficiency of the lights, but it's the savings on not having to offset as much heat with your AC. So you're like the perfect candidate for really paying off the upgrade in just a couple of grows in terms of the electrical savings. The my buddy he had the, he said he had one of the best sales and actually by the time I was gonna buy one they were they had ran out of it but they they were in some type of a competition and they were selling the Davidas and they were the real ones he said not the knockoffs for a thousand bucks a piece now I don't know if that's a good deal I don't know anything about it but it's still just not worth spending a thousand dollars to get a eight hundred watt grow light yeah. You can find better quality for lower prices. Yeah. That's reviewed. Photons are photons. I mean, this is one of the points that I make in my, my video. Like, it doesn't matter if they come out of a Gavita light or, you know, a Mars light or a Metacro light or any other kind of light. Photons are photons in the end. And it, getting them from a Gavita light and paying over a dollar per watt is like on sale right it's just you can get grow lights now for a lot less than a lot less than that in terms of micromoles per or in terms of you know pennies per micromole you can get good lights for your room for about 30 cents per micromole even on sale a, a gavita light's probably going to be 60 70 cents per micromole um and it's just not worth 
paying twice as much for their, for each micromole. Yeah, I, I don't uh, think so either. And I think that's a perfect spot to wrap it up. And we'll go around the panel real quick and uh, give our final thoughts and shout out, starting with you, Dr. MJ. Absolutely. That was a lot of fun, guys. I'm happy to be on camera. It was hard. Like, I was definitely sort of over aware. Maybe as I, I get like better at this, I'll become less aware of being on camera. Um, but anyways, I think it's fun. And I'm glad to get to sort of meet everybody or at least people get to know me a little bit better this way. So um, if you haven't yet, check out my my new video, The Science of LED, of Horticultural LEDs. I've worked on it for like six months. Um, it dives into the science of horticultural LEDs. And if you're interested in any of this stuff, if you want to make sure that you have the, the information to not get kind of hoodwinked by the LED grow light companies that are going to try to sell you stuff, um, check it out. It's on my YouTube channel at Dr. MJ Coco. And um, yeah, you know, I'm from Coco for Cannabis. We're gearing up for the New Year's Grow Challenge. It always starts on January 1st. If you're interested in, in growing with us next time, and um, I'll be back again next week. Much grower love to everybody. Looking forward to that. And uh, next up, we got Noah the Grower, who showed off some live video there with uh, a Coke can or some sort of soda can next to his buds. I don't, I don't think there was any photography tricks there uh, showing it right next to the side of the bud. Those were some good looking uh, chunky buds there, Noah. So great job. And uh, let's get our final thought and shout out from you. Yeah. And uh, like this one right here, that's just two root balls right there. So uh, yeah. Um, I, I could get bigger ones with bigger, bigger uh, pots and stuff, but uh, I've been just kind of growing for more for a little bit more on the getting smaller buds and just kind of this run I changed it up. They're still pretty decent size, but uh, yeah, I'm no other grower. Sorry, I was late, but uh, I decided I was going to jump in. I was like, man, I'm going to definitely come in here and we show my room off to everybody. And uh, I'm glad everybody uh, showed up and uh, see everybody next week. We'll see you next week, Noah. And next up, Matthew Gates. Yeah, good talk. I'm glad people were interested in the powdery mildew botrytis talk. I really liked uh, the video that Doc made. Um, and I also liked the teaser explanation, went over a lot of the really cool parts of the video. And um, I'm really enjoying the chat interactions as well. So again, if you're interested, I have a YouTube channel, Xenthanol. You can check me out for professional inquiries about pest mitigation. I work with all kinds of people at xenthanol.com. You can also find a lot of the educational information that I post on Instagram and Twitter, which I use the hash of uh, the hashtag, the uh, username SyncAngel, S-Y-N-C-H-A-N-G-E-L. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thank you again for joining us. And last and certainly not least, the American one. Jack, as always, thanks for hosting. You did great, even with the NSA interruptions. Uh, thanks, everyone on the panel. It was definitely interesting. And thanks, out, shout out to everyone in chat um i'm the american one you guys know where to find me and uh have a great week this week get it done and yeah i want to say one thing about spartan saying you know you'll be disappointed when you meet your idols well, don't have any idols you should be make yourself your idol so you know what i'm saying yeah all right i'll quote matthew it. mcconaughey he says the person he admires most is himself in 10 years, which I think there's something to take from that, you know, you, you go, because perfect. you've overcome all the challenges in the past 10 years, you know, more things you've, you've gone through the struggles and hopefully learn from them and become a better person. So something well, I just about. walk by the mirror and just fall in love every time. So I don't know. Not everyone's as perfect as Sal, but <laughs> hopefully we can aspire to self-confidence. Be the hero of your own movie. That's another good one there, Noah. But with that said, uh, 
at Jack Greenstock here signing out. We've gone a few minutes over. Make sure to go check out the Michigan Bros Grow Show if you haven't already. Spartan Growing's over there right now with Sequence and the gang. Whole lot of great growers and uh, they do great stuff in the Michigan community. So check them out. You can find me, Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter as well. Uh, if you want to book 50 strands of green, go to 50strands.com. And uh, if you don't use social media, you can email me, jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com. Thank you all for coming. Another great one. Flew right by. Thank you, Doc. And uh, Matthew specifically for carrying the topics tonight. I uh, didn't have anything planned. So it was great that you both showed up and were able to uh, present very well. And hopefully people are interested to now go and look at the content originally on your page for those who haven't already, because I know it's a portion of our population, but some more of those people should definitely go check out not only that content, but the rest of the great stuff that you're posting. So thank you guys very much. And thank you everyone in the chat for showing up. Like always great time with everybody hanging out, getting a few questions in there where we could and uh, just chatting and seeing everybody. It's great to uh, see this community continue to show up every week. So thank you all. Jack Green Sox signing out. Have a great week. Grow love, everybody.